Andrew, you got ripped up for shred again, and you lost like 20 pounds. What are you eating exactly? Yeah, well, it actually starts off with no eating, 16-hour fast, but then like one to two two chicken meals while I'm here at work. And then by the time I get home, it's it's go time. I need something awesome to look forward to. And there's nothing better than Piedmontese flat iron steaks. It has about 90 grams of protein for that whole steak, only eight grams of fat, which fits perfectly because I'm more of a higher carb-ish low fat type of guy mm. so it fits perfectly with my macros how do they pack all that protein in there i would wager there is something better they're ribeyes ah uh, it's well, like yeah. half the fat of a normal ribeye still juicy still tender still just oh so good and yeah you can't go wrong yeah i don't know what sorcery they're they're pulling over there at piedmontese steaks but you guys got to head over to piedmontese.com that's p-i-e-d-m-o-n-t-e-s-e.com at checkout enter promo code power project for 25 percent off your order and if your order is 99 dollars or more you get free two-day shipping here god's going to be holding your book oh all right sounds good to me he's probably co-author <laughs> probably he may have he may have helped in some way probably. oh there it is Maybe. not physically but probably spiritually he probably assisted see if john cena wants to be part of the book too there we go you got everybody all set up oh my gosh that would be amazing <laughs> I, I, I would go i would geek out completely you a wrestling fan uh I, you still I, like some wrestling uh, when i was a kid I, yeah yeah i think who wasn't right? yeah right and i know um i know some i know a couple like professional wrestlers yeah. Ch- chavo guerrero Oh yeah, you know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. He's a super nice guy. Super nice guy. Yeah, I've, I've hung out with him, and he tells me stories. And I just, I just like, I just like his stories. Oh god, yeah, those like, old, those old school wrestling stories are the best. War stories. Yeah, they're crazy. <laughs> they're like, like, and I'll just go through the list. I'm like, hey man, uh, what about Roddy Roddy Piper? Is he, is he like really crazy? <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's crazy. <laughs> That's so funny. If you get around somebody like that, you're trying not to be a fan. Like you're trying not to be, you know, they call it a mark, a wrestling mark. You're trying not to be a mark, and you're but you can't help I it. I can't. Yeah, you can't You're help like, it. Oh, dude, what about the yeah. Iron Sheik, man? Like, right. Is yeah. he really pissed off yeah. all the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's yeah. the deal with him? Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, you can't help it. What yeah. you doing here in NorCal? It's uh, great that we had you stop by. Um, you, we've been talking about getting you on the podcast again, so it's great to have you here again. Uh, what uh, brings you out to the NorCal region? A little business, a little family business, and um, you know, a little little bit of a uh, little bit of business business, but. Um, I uh, mentioned before the show, I have a, I have a brother who has Down syndrome and uh, he, uh, he's kind of been up and down with some things. And um, I brought him down to my home in Southern Cal a few months ago and he had Parkinson's, you know, he had Parkinson's on set. And um, I just threw, like I said, I threw the kitchen sink at him and like literally was miraculous within like seven days. He went from shaking to asymptomatic he went from not being able to walk like 20 yards to um walking six flights of stairs every day and walking a half mile and and probably the, the biggest thing was his mood like in his in his sort of you know his, his brain and his, and his metabolic function in his brain went from going into these uh states of being kind of catatonic mm. to almost 100 percent normal in terms of his personality i even i even filmed part of it um I, I yeah. Like, why not monetize this, right? <laughs> no, I just mean. <laughs> I'm just. I'm just kidding. Yeah, you're making money on your. <laughs> wow, dude. Um, no, I, uh, I I took him to a, a testimony. You want to show other people like what can be done through nutrition, right? Uh, uh, man, yeah, I, I think so. It's it's um, I, you've got to be careful about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I, for me, it was just more personal. It was just more about you know. 
I want to do whatever I can to help him. And so, um, so he was really good and, and, and he's kind of relapsed a little bit. So I'm mm. going to work on him again. So, yeah. Um, so the diet, it was like dietary changes and just, uh, some exercise that, uh, assisted. Uh, it was a host of things. Uh, so the Parkinson's sim- symptoms are, um, very much to do with, um, a gut dysbiosis where B vitamin production declines and at the same time uh, serum vitamin D is just in the toilet. So if you can fix those two things, um, what I found is that a lot of the symptoms went away. Um, I mean, like actually it went 100% away. And you find that as a subset of aging in general. So what you find in general is as we get older, our B vitamin production just goes down. And it's going down because bifidobacteria is going down in the gut. And, and that's one of the things that bifidobacteria does is it leads to B vitamin production. And um, so just correcting that was a big deal. And the other thing is testosterone, just getting him to sleep more and getting, mm. getting him to make testosterone while he's sleeping. So he went from sleeping like maybe four hours tonight to 12 to 16. Wow. And that was huge. Was he receptive to it? Like, was he like game for it? Like, yeah, I, w- I would love, like to feel better. Wasn't on the list as an option. Yeah. <laughs> like you're, <laughs> yeah, you're making take this, take yeah. that, take yeah. that. You know, I was on him like every, every hour and a half, mm. you know, like, yeah. So, um, combat sports Academy, uh, is a, uh, gym that my friend, uh, Jesse Burdick works at and he runs like a powerlifting program and they have, they have CrossFit, they have MMA, um, really, really cool gym. Uh, but what they also have is they have a guy there that trains uh, many people that are down that that are Down syndrome oh, individuals wow. as really? well as uh, I think autism and wow. some other things yeah, and wow. the the changes and the advancements that people are having mm-hmm. he you know he doesn't really try to do too much dietary intervention because uh, he just realizes what an uphill battle that would be mm-hmm. and it's hard with the caretakers and people that mm-hmm. care for these people their yeah. parents a lot of times. You know, it's hard to get them on board with, you know, you got to kind of be mean to your 11-year-old kid that has Down yeah, syndrome. Right. You can't feed him mac and cheese anymore. You got to <laughs> kind of like make him eat this other stuff. But yeah. there has been a few individuals there that have uh, progressed a lot faster than the other ones when there was some dietary intervention. Hmm. Um, how, like, how important is, you know, a dietary intervention for a lot of Americans that are just suffering from different ailments sometimes just uh i think maybe the general public isn't even aware of how how bad uh metabolic disorders can kind of bleed into a lot of other things and really not only just ha- be ailments and be kind of nicks and things you're dinged up with but they can also be affecting disease uh really really profoundly uh, how much of an impact does your food you know have on this sort of stuff um i i would just from my own personal experience, I, I would venture to say that, um, you know, percent wise, it could be quite significant to 100%. And it just depends on what you want to look at. But um, what I think is starting to happen in the medical community is a little bit more awareness that um, gut related issues, particularly due to um, species and different taxa in the gut, mediate a lot of things. And so the growing awareness of that is kind of opening the doors to accept that um, a lot of things that are sort of diseaseified um, can be powerfully ameliorated, at least the symptoms, ameliorated through very specific protocols of diet and, and different uh, inputs of food and, and things like that. So 
yeah, I, I, am I'm, I'm in the camp of like, you can do a heck of a lot more than you think you can. So. And then when it comes to like the gut <laughs> microbiome, we hear people talking about that so much. Do we need to really, uh, be all that obsessed with that? Do we need to continue to like study that a ton mm. or no. do we need to wait for more research or do we need no. to just eat better? No, I talk about that in my book. Um, there's a lot of myths that have grown up about the gut, uh, a bunch, there's six big ones, you know, uh, diversity and a bunch of other ones. But, but the net of the gut really is that you need two bacteria and you need to focus on two bacteria. Uh, the first one is bifidobacteria. And then the next one is acromancia mucinolfa. Those are the two that you need to focus on. And uh, if you focus on those two, you'll get diversity in the gut and you'll get the right kind of diversity in the gut. Um, and you really don't need to worry about much else. And feeding those two uh, is not that hard. It really, once you understand how to do it, it's not that difficult to do. And that's really the, the that's kind of the gist of it. Like if I was going to boil it to gut down a couple of things, it's acromancia and bifidobacteria. And it's easy to prove. You can, you can have diversity, and if you don't have those two bacteria in the gut, you're going to be sick, guaranteed. Um, conversely, uh, if you just focus on those two bacteria, um, you're going to be healthy. And not only are you going to be healthy, you're, you're probably going to live longer, and you're probably going to be um, much less uh, of a risk for uh, a number of disease states. So, How, it, it, oh, in, in terms of those two, yeah. would that mainly be supplementation or is it no. nutritional protocol? Yeah, nutritional protocols. Yeah. How, how would Purely one, food. I mean, I know you probably talk about it in the book, yeah. but if the viewers could understand, yeah. how can they attack that today? Yeah, so um, keyword is order of operations. Um, you Things go wrong in a specific order. And one of the, one of the reasons I wrote the book um, was there's so much confusion right now about what to do. And, you know, everybody I talk to is so confused. Um, and one of the reasons they're confused is because they don't have a framework. They don't have an order of operations based on what's really true about the body. So in the case of your, these, these two specific bacteria, the first thing you, let me just walk through the order of operations. Um, the first thing you need to go after is acromancia. Okay, very first thing you need to do. And what you need to understand is that there's two ways that you can replete acromancia. The first way you can replete acromancia is through fasting. Um, and it has to do with a concept I put forth in the book called bacterial guilds. So what people are just starting to grab onto is the idea of substrates. The idea that very specific foods can feed specific bacteria. Okay, that's kind of level one. But the, the next level, the common level beyond that, is the idea of what are called guilds. And guilds are different bacteria, but what they have in common is the way they get nitrogen or the way they get carbon. So you can have completely different species, um, and they have something in common. It's the way they get nitrogen. So in the body, nitrogen, you can get it through the diet, okay? So you can get it through high-protein diets, for example, mm -hmm. or... Uh, if you cease protein, then the body will secrete it internally. And when the body secretes nitrogen internally, uh, that seems to feed acromancia what it needs. So this is one of the reasons that you'll see a little bit of a bump when you, when you fast, a little bit of an improvement in gut health, is that you're making nitrogen internally now. So the big shift, the big key to understand is that individual foods feed individual species, okay? Macros feed gilds. So macros feed entire, entire guilds of bacteria. And there's been some really interesting research on this when you look at like, um, like going sort of on the all protein camp. 
there's 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 pros and there's cons. In my book, I I call it the map of guilt, and I list a little map and kind of show you the pros and it's cons. It's pretty much a pro and con of every yep. diet, right? And that's mm-hmm. why, like, I've worked with you before, and you gave me a lot of great advice, and you had me shifting kind of in and out of different things. Yeah. Right. There's, so yeah. there's, there's going to be, it's just like lifting, right? Yeah. It's a lot of great benefit to yeah. bodybuilding, but maybe you're missing out on a strength component. A lot of great uh, attributes can be acquired through powerlifting, but maybe you're missing out on yeah. some uh, fitness or, or conditioning, right? A hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to finish answering your question there, uh, but I'll, uh, I'm guilty of rambling a lot. So I'm trying to be a little <laughs> more succinct. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, one, one chapter in the book that I, devoted a lot to was the idea of um, balance as the highest truth of health. And that I I go and I just list all these disease states and and every single one lists the word lack of homeostasis. And if you just substitute balance for that, what you get is basically every disease you can think of is an imbalance. So imbalance is disease. Balance is health. And so with this, there's the idea of what's called chronobiology, which is that we really have to factor in timing. So we have to factor in days, weeks, and seasons. And there's truth to all that. There's a whole bunch we could talk about diurnal rhythm, but there's also weekly rhythms, and then there's seasonal rhythms. So there's there's just sort of an easy to buy into idea that historically <clears throat> we've had seasons. You know, we had seasons of plenty, we had seasons of lack, we had seasons of high protein, we had seasons of having to eat grains because there wasn't any protein because all the animals were gone. And so once you get this idea of seasons, it, it, it's actually very freeing because you can have a season of just eating all meat and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But then you can have a season of, you know, cycling off that and doing other things. And th- so through seasons, we, we get balance. And that is kind of the highest truth of health. And what we'll do is a little bit later, we'll, we'll translate that mechanistically into how it works in the body. So but to answer your question, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if we, so if we... Um... You know, I know there's some people that are listening that are probably enjoying some of the science and there's some people that are going, I don't, I'm starting to really get lost right away. Um, <laughs> if we, if we have a, a healthy diet, which I'll just say would be uh, eating things that are natural um, yeah. to this earth, as natural as we can get them, I guess, right. uh, fruits and vegetables and um, uh, meat. And I don't know if there would be much more else in there, but if we stuck to kind of eating some of that stuff, mm-hmm. Uh, would we, we be on the right track to being healthy? Uh, you know, if we just didn't eat like processed stuff? Um, yes and no, um, which is shocking to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, in that um, modern food has uh, a very specific effect on your body's natural inhibitory controls on eating. Modern food, what happens in modern food is when you push the energy density of food beyond a certain level, it breaks the body's controls over both um, satiety and hunger. That's intake. a great way of saying it. I yeah. like that a lot. Mm-hmm. So modern food has a very special property. It breaks the body's eating controls. So, so there's that. Um, the other side of that is that there's no getting away from it for most people. <laughs> there just isn't. And um, one of the things I talk a lot about in my book is that the, the modern era of fitness is mimicking seasons of uh, famine and feasting. We're just accidentally mimicking famine and feasting. And so what happens is when you get done with the get in shape phase, i.e. The, the famine phase, then comes the feasting phase. Mm. We just don't call it that, you know. We just call it, oh, I'm off track. I got to get back on track. In other words, I got to go back into my famine. Okay. Yeah. So what we're doing over time is we're cycling in famine and feasting. So rather than, um, I, I I put forth something that's worked for me, and um, it's 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 worked for a lot of people that I've put it forth to is that it's much more important to understand how to offset the effects of modern food 
um, than it is to completely avoid it. Because most people, like if you really, really listen to what they're actually doing, you know, like they're keto Monday through Friday and then Saturday and Friday night's kind of a break. <laughs> that's kind of what's going on. So you need, to, you need to be able to offset that. So that's kind of the long answer to that. That's, Makes sense. That's 600 words less than my standard <laughs> long-winded answer. You were mentioning earlier uh, the impact of walking. You said, you know, 22 minutes of walking can kind of help, you know, rid you of this. Uh, mm-hmm. what's, what are the impacts of uh, even just some gradual exercise such as walking? Mm-hmm. Uh, life-changing, life-altering, just from the perspective of um, in the modern era of fitness, we have conflated the idea of um, working out with uh, daily exertion. They're not the same. Yeah, going in and busting your ass for two hours straight, right? <laughs> yeah, no, they're not the same. Right. They're not the same. If you look at your historical analogs of what, what did people always do, you know, you were just kind of exerting yourself every day. You know, like, uh, go get some water. That's the river's a mile away. Go get some water. Okay. Um, make some butter, you know, uh, chop some wood. So daily continuous exertion was this thing that, that just people just did. And it doesn't really take a lot of time to do that. It doesn't take that much. But the key is that you're doing it every single day, every single day. And so it's very easy to do uh, daily exertion. Uh, Over time, what I've witnessed is that a lot of people have a very hard time um, maintaining uh, workouts year in and year out across the seasons of life. Mm -hmm. But you can exert every day. And even people that love working out. Yeah, they, they, gotcha. yeah, even people that love working yeah. out, they struggle. We see it all the time. Like, yep. oh, man, I've been out of sorts for a little while. I've been out of the gym for two right. weeks, three right. weeks, yeah. three months. Yep, yep, 100%. Yeah, That's, that is a, a massive driver of the problem. Um, I, I'm trying to find an easy way to stop saying, oh, in my book. <laughs> but I, That's okay. I refer to it as much as you, as much you, as you want. You people, keep, should, people should grab a hold of it. It's a lot of great information. Um, I use this analogy in the book of um, – a, uh, of, a, of a car. So if you could have, if, if you were locked into one car for your entire lifetime and you had to pick one, um, you'd factor in a lot of things. You'd think, mm, I might sometimes have to go off-road. Um, sometimes I want to go to the track. Uh, sometimes I want to pull up, you know, to a nice hotel. You'd factor a lot of things in the car. Um, what you wouldn't do is park the car for six months and, and not start it and then take it to the track and race the crap out of it and then park it for six months and then take it to the track. Because both of those things are going to just destroy the car really fast. Um, the best thing you could do would be, to, to your analogy of walking every day, would be to just drive the car every day. The car will last much longer doing it that way. And what the modern era has done is replicated the park the car and then take the car to the track. And that's what a lot of people do over time. You know, you hear this, oh, I'm out of it. I got to get back on track. And then when they get back on track, they go hard. They do CrossFit. They do a lot of things. They get injured. Then they're out. And then they're in. Then they're out. And they just play this cycle out. And that cycle uh, is really destructive long term. Now, along with that, uh, you know, keeping constant active, like activity every single day, you mentioned sleep with your brother. Mm. And we talk a lot, or we've talked a lot about sleep on this podcast. Not There's, sleeping with his brother, but sleep not s- and his brother. <laughs> yeah. As it pertains to his brother. Yeah. Right. Commas, <laughs> uh, verbiage, all of this. Yes. Strange comments by Mark. Uh, yeah. How you, um, you know, you, you, you helped us sleep. Now, you know, there's been a lot of like books, um, Matthew Walker and Sean Stevenson, they've made mm. books on sleep, but mm-hmm. I, I anticipate that you probably have a different view on how to optimize individual sleep. Cause a lot of people, you know, getting sun outside, a lot of things, there's probably more that you can do to optimize your sleep. So what kind of steps can people take, simple steps mm-hmm. or even the more advanced things that you would mm-hmm. go towards to get better sleep each night? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, let me run through a list of things. So, okay. um, uh, no particular order here. One would be, and I, I have a chapter on this in my book where I talk about sort of um, what I call peak human sleep and op- optimizing that. Um, I would say the first thing is try to um, try to mimic the ancestral sleep pattern, which is basically kind of in bed by around nine or so and up like at five or six. And that, that pattern seems to be um, associated with abundant energy. Okay. You know, and so just give it a try. Um, that would be sort of one thing. And um, there's a... Uh, See if I can pull it up here. There's actually a graph in here that talks uh, that compares ancestral sleep to modern sleep um, because there's been some research on on um, communities. I don't know if you guys can see this, but there's yeah. been some research on on um, communities that uh, like the Hazda and other ones, and we can kind of mm-hmm. see the differences between the two. And they're things like so they have. Um, they they sleep on hard surfaces. We sleep on comfortable surfaces. They wake up a bunch of times during the night, but they go right back to sleep. We wake up and don't go back to sleep. And so there's all these sort of interesting differences. A lot of stuff in your cupboard to eat. You know that's why that's why we uh, that's why we you know stay awake, right? Yeah. Um, well, that brings us to the next thing, which is controlling food food cycles. So there's been a lot of debate about. Um, what exerts more control over sleep? Is it is it light and dark cycles or is it food? What is it? And so the easy concept to get is that light and dark cycles are controlled in the brain by the archaic nucleus. Mm-hmm. Um, sleep cycles controlled by um, uh, the organs are controlled by inputs like food. Yeah. The winner is the organs. Okay. The organs are the winner. Um, and it's easy to prove. If you want to prove it to yourself, just um, eat 6,000 calories after we're done today <laughs> yep. and then try and stay awake. Mm-hmm. Just go to Churioscura, knock it out yeah. <laughs> and try and stay awake. Mm-hmm. Very, very tough. Yeah. Conversely, um, there's, a, there's actually a meal sequence in there I can give you to induce starvation Yeah. and try and sleep. Try and sleep when you're starving. It's really hard. Oh yeah. And no, like whenever, yeah. if, if I ever do a prolonged fast, it's hard, for hard me to, to sleep. Like, if I try to do it the second day after right. like 36 hours or whatever, I can't sleep. Right. I have to eat something. Right. Or else I'm not going to fall asleep. Right. So that gets us to the next thing is uh, food patterns and food cycles. So um, controlling inputs of food is one of the easiest and most effective things you can do to induce sleep. So there's some new research now about small inputs of food at night um, to create sleep onset. And so the example I use in the book is a grilled cheese sandwich. I, our, our friend, the grilled cheese yeah. sandwich. <laughs> uh, so very small inputs at night of things like a grilled cheese sandwich will help sleep onset. Why is, why is like that together specific? Like why, why that works? Cause it's delicious. It's like the fat <laughs> and the carbs together makes you like, uh, so it, a lot of it just has to do with, um, the peripheral clocks okay. in the body and the way that they're activated by pulses of food. Hmm. That's, that's a big, and we all know this is true. It's like when you have a certain type of meal or a big meal or the right kind of meal, um, I use the grilled cheese example cause anybody can relate to that. Like if you have a really good grilled cheese, you kind of feel a little drowsy afterwards, a little yeah, sleepy, yeah, you know, sure. he's like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why we feed it to kids, uh, in like daycare and stuff, you know, you kind of. <laughs> Slow them down a little bit. Yeah. Shut them up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so food pulses will induce sleep. Um, and there's a lot to be done with uh, food pulses during the day to control sleep. And so there's a lot of different things you can do in that realm, like like big meals at certain times of the day um, will either advance sleep on slept, onset or disrupt it. Uh, in combination with that, uh, and this, this sounds really hokey, but it's like pure science, it's take your hands and your feet and dip them in hot water like 10 minutes before bed. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, 
it sounds like snake oil, but it's it's like a science validated thing. What happens is if you dilate the peripheral arteries, it helps sleep onset. So okay, that's another big one. Does that uh, somehow maybe help kind of uh, cool you down because your hands got hot? And your feet got hot? It's just something the, like that? It's just the dilation. Dilation of the arteries. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, probably the biggest thing, though, that I don't think is talked about enough is inflammation. So if you get inflammation down, you're going to sleep a heck of a lot better. And that ties into its sort of partner. And think of the pedals on a bike. There's two partners. One is inflammation, and the other is hypoxia during sleep. Those two things will disrupt sleep more than anything else. And they'll disrupt your health more than anything else. Mm. They'll promote cancer onset. Uh, inflammation, all kinds of age-related problems from um, hypoxia during sleep. And what is what is hypoxia? Hypoxia just means that your your, your tissues or, or certain tissues are not getting enough oxygen. So when that happens, there's a very key protein. Uh, I built my book around that and macrophages uh, called HIF1, hypoxia-inducible factor 1. There's three isoforms of this protein, 1, 2, and 3. The one that we concern ourselves with is called HIF1. And the way HIF-1 works is um, it's, it's neither bad nor good. It's essential. Uh, the issue has to do with the excess accumulation of it within cells, particularly during sleep, particularly in the brain. And when HIF-1 begins to accumulate, then what happens is it's a major gene activator, and it translocates into the nucleus and activates all these genes associated with absolutely nothing good. So clearing excess HIF-1 and ameliorating hypoxia during sleep. And that's going to do is going to reduce your cancer risk. Um, It's going to increase your energy. Uh, It's going to knock inflammation out. Nothing inflames me more than not getting adequate oxygen when I'm sleeping. Mm -hmm. Like it happened the other night. I I didn't wear a breathe right. And I I went to do some sprints the next day and I was like really sore. And I was like, oh man, I can't remember not to do that. So a breathe right strip can help. What about something like taping your mouth shut? Absolutely, yeah. So there's... um, there's there's a there's a sequence of things you can do. It's called the first is called the Seattle Protocol. It's very simple. It's uh, mouth tape, breathe rights, uh, a few things like that. <clears throat> the, I got like so much stuff on my head when I'm sleeping. I got I got the breathe right strip going. I got the mouth tape. I got shit blocking out the. Uh, you know, I got I, I need like a whole helmet. We've yeah. talked about it on this it, podcast it's, before. It's, it's the era that geared up like biohacker. <laughs> you should see my wife. I mean, she's into it. She's she's just like <laughs> she's got a bunch of stuff going on. Yeah, it's just like she's. You try to get you try to just get a kiss and you can't get nothing right. Uh, unless you want to kiss tape. No. It's yeah. Tape. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the next level, though, which I think um, uh, is is underserved, is a mouth appliance. And you basically just, you go to a dentist and they custom fit you. And then what it does is advances the jaw while you're sleeping. Mm. And that's well, like a mouthpiece while you sleep or something. Like that? That's what it is. Yeah. It's a mouthpiece, but, but it just, it, what it does is so in advancing the jaw, what you can do is you open the airway up and by opening the airway up, um, probably the single biggest thing you can do for your health. I mean, like above anything, wow. above anything would be that because you're, you're just oxygenating much better during sleep. And in terms of like probably your list of bang for the buck anti-aging i do that first before i do anything you just go to a dentist do all Mm -hmm. dentists know about this not all um i I happen to um know one dr gregory gregory Kleiband, who Mm -hmm. um is down in irvine who uh, he lectures at ucla and he's way 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 into this it's like we need mouthpieces over here oh yeah yeah yeah. what are we doing we're living in the past (laughs) and then i was gonna say because like i've I've seen like devices that are like shown like infomercials and stuff where they (laughs) Mm -hmm. like have like the diagram of the the chin coming forward is that the same thing or does it have to be 
specific thing for each individual? Uh, I've, I've asked Dr. Kleiman about that. Mm-hmm. And what he's communicated to me is you really want to custom fit the thing for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it gets into um, the structure of the mouth and the jaw is not something you want to play with. And yeah. It gets into a fascinating topic when you start digging into this thing. Yeah. What about mewing? Have you heard of that? Uh, Which is this? Uh, mewing is uh, like the formation of the roof of your mouth. Oh, yeah. And, okay. you know, yeah. pushing into right. the roof of your mouth right. and you can uh, help change the, the mm-hmm. structure of your of your jawline and yep. it can help with breathing and yeah. it can help you be better looking because you could have, you know, more stunning features. But uh, yeah. I guess. Is that you what know, you did? That's what, I, that's what I've been doing this whole time. <laughs> it's so working. The whole time we've been talking, I've been yeah. pushing my tongue in the roof of my mouth. As I'm talking. Well, you're getting more <laughs> handsome by the minute. Look at yeah, that. See? It's crazy. So if uh, I push my tongue into the roof of your mouth, will I get handsomer? It pause. Looks, pause. Mm, we, <laughs> yeah. We haven't practiced mm. that enough, Andrew. Maybe, hey. maybe we can pause and you guys can <laughs> get more reps in. Huh? Try that out. But, uh, you know, some people that have like a, a forward head posture and some uh-huh. people that are, you know, mouth breathers, um, you know, they, they've gotten some benefits from getting uh, kind of what you're talking about. I've heard, heard of people uh, talk about that before and just... Uh, just uh, getting better oxygen, right? Like getting, you know, uh, more efficient, I guess, with your breathing. It actually starts during childhood. And, and it's, it's a really deep rabbit hole, but it's pretty fascinating. Um, you can make a really good case that uh, a very big contributor to obesity uh, begins in childhood with with apnea, with uh, mm-hmm. lack of chewing soft foods, with the proper improper formation of the cheekbones and the jaw and the, and the mouth and all that stuff. And um, what you'll see is with childhood obesity, you'll see a high incidence of things like snoring and mm. you know, apnea and hypoxia and all this stuff. And it, it all comes back to chewing soft foods. Um, there's a picture in my book from a, a conference that I did with uh, Quest Nutrition back in I guess, 2017. And uh, Ron Penna, the... Uh, yeah, we know Ron. Mr. Quest, mm-hmm. uh, did his handpicked kind of list of, you know, who he thought were the thought leaders, brought us all in a room, and we just shared ideas. And... Uh, there was a 70-year-old man that um, that uh, had an appliance. Long story short, um, this guy regrew the bones of his face. The hell? Oh, yeah. It's crazy. In fact, there are pictures in here somewhere. The, um, In fact, I think, I think it's right here. That's wild. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, eh, you can't see it that well. But, um, yeah. It, in this picture here, that was just from regrowing the bones of his face. And doing that at such an advanced age is, is super impressive, too. Yeah, it's uh, so there's a there's an emerging belief or not belief, excuse me. There's an emerging view, which um, uh, is a very big part of this book, is the idea of what's called mechanobiology. Mm-hmm. Are you guys familiar with it? No, we're not familiar with anything. Apparently, <laughs> whoa, this is dude, this is insane. How yeah. long did this take him? It was about a year. And that's from wearing the mouthpiece or some other device. He he had a very specific appliance that is uh, geared to sort of. Um, sort of reshift the, the, the palate of the mouth, but it, essentially it emulates hard chewing yeah. is what it did. And if you saw that like in the actual original picture, we were just kind of all sitting there in the, yeah. like with our mouths open. What do you mean by, by soft, the chewing of soft food? So um, getting back to this idea of mechanobiology, there's, th- this is a, this is sort of a, this is sort of a, not an option to not understand mechanobiology going forward. Um, the emerging view is that Cells are programmed, and they are programmed from the outside in by physical forces, okay? So a lot of the programming for cells is mechanical in nature. So shearing stress, uh, traction stress, different kinds of of mechanical stress actually reprogram cells. And 
in the case of the face, um, the, mechan- the mechanobiology of the bone structure of the face is related to chewing. So what happens is, um, if you look at ancestral societies, and they're always they're always doing this, and they're always you know ripping off, and, and they're always mm-hmm. chewing really like hard. Like a dog, yeah, yeah. Well, what it does is it stimulates. It's an epigenetic signal. It stimulates genes that cause the bones of the face to grow up, and it causes the the palate to form properly. It's no different from uh, you know some of the studies we've seen about like uh, just you know jogging or pounding. And it makes the bones stronger. That must uh, really play into a lot of different things. Now that I'm thinking about it, because you, you know. If like you probably don't even get we probably don't even really make those faces anymore, like the face that you would make to tear into like a ribeye and to really mm-hmm. like try to rip the damn thing apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like when we make certain faces, we know like if you smile more, you tend to be a little bit happier. Right. Like, right. Yeah. So it's got to be sending a lot of cra- it's got to it's got to make a huge difference, uh, especially over such a long period of time. Right. Yeah, again, you know, uh, the, the case that, uh, that the strongest case is, is made with childhood obesity and, and chewing soft foods in our culture. So we've just eliminated hard chewing. And by eliminating hard chewing as a gene activator, you can take that idea and trace it all the way to the obesity epidemic if you really want to pick a position. I see. I was misunderstanding. So the, the, the chewing of soft food is bad, basically, uh, in, in, a, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because right. you're eliminating a major gene activator. Right. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So. so let me ask you this. Like, um, I was going to ask you when you mentioned the mouthpiece, would this, and I know it's like all over the world, but would this mostly be like a first world type of issue because of like the type of food that kids eat here? Because mm-hmm. I know like I have a lot of relatives in Nigeria, mm-hmm. the foods that they eat aren't like that. And mm-hmm. like the family over there, it, it, it's very different. Like they mm-hmm. don't need dental work. None of mm-hmm. my family over there has ever needed any type of wisdom teeth mm-hmm. removal or dental work or anything mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. just because of the nature of the food that they've been eating. That does not surprise me in the least. I, um, it, it makes sense. I, I don't like directly know, have any data about outside the U S yeah. but um, a question uh, just estimating, like, would you sort of say that their facial structure is a little more pronounced? Yeah. Okay. Especially up here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. yeah that makes sense. Perfect okay. sense. Yeah, actually. So like, do you know what phallium gum is? Mm-hmm. Would you suggest that people pick something like that up or no? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's helpful. Yeah, I think it's I think it's helpful. The act of um, the act of just chewing on things that require the facial structure and the bones of the facial structure to do a lot of work uh, is really the the missing ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, I do. Um, I'll either you know chew uh, raw green beans or Ooh. there's actually um, there's actually an appliance that I have that uh, you, you put it in the front of the mouth and you can you can work out the bones of the face. But the trick with that thing. And I, and I, again, I got with a dentist on this and asked him is you've got to, you've got to do it. You've got to pull it out and chew it on all sides, because if you don't, you're going to overdevelop one part of the mandible plate and see, so mm-hmm. just, just rotate it through the mouth and you get a hell of a workout on that thing. You got to grab that. Yeah. Uh, what, what should our children, uh, you know, be eating? I realize that's a giant question, but, um, how can we, you know, what are some things we can do, uh, to help against childhood obesity? Because as you were pointing out earlier, uh, this kind of concept of, of uh, feeding bacteria, uh, that's that's what I see with children. You know, they, they are so excited about, you know, um, ice cream and things like that. And it almost seems like, and I realize there's multiple reasons for it, but it almost seems like they're like in a trance. They're like mm. hypnotized yeah, they are. by some of these sweets and some of right. these foods. But um, it, it appears to me, in my observation, uh, that the gut is kind of overriding you know, any mm-hmm. sense that you might have, even as you get older, of kind of slowing down on some of those foods. So how do we kind of help our kids? 
Yeah, 100%. So uh, first thing is to understand that the the dominant species in the gut is going to program your brain to feed them what they need to live, and you're going to think it's you. Um, my brother, his uh, wife, when she was pregnant, was eating a lot of spinach, and her son was born craving spinach. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I've had uh, people that have done my beep nutrition system who were junk food junkies, and in eight days got nauseated on junk food. So the awesome news is the gut is rapidly modifiable. And in the process of doing that, you will completely reprogram what you crave. So when kids are craving, you know, like Gatorade or, you know, sweets and all this stuff, um, the outside idea is you can rapidly reprogram them, their, 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 their gut. So they don't even crave those things anymore. It's just getting through the pain period. It's about seven days to do it. And, you know, there's ways to do it. Um, and an easy way to, an easy way to kind of start them off is with things like, um, I call it a, uh, I call it a, um, in my nutrition system, it's basically a frappe. It's you, you take yogurt, you take honey, you take raspberries, you take bananas, you take all these different things and you, you know, put a ton of honey on it, make it really sweet, make it really good. And just sort of start giving them those types of things. And it'll start to recolonize the gut a little bit. And then you can kind of wean them into other things that help with that. Mm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. What, what's uh, the deal with like, uh, you know, we got prebiotics and probiotics. I mean, we hear so much about, yeah. you know, yogurt and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Is this stuff, is it really beneficial? Is it harmful? Uh, mm-hmm. What is it? What is, what are probiotics? So what are they doing for us or not doing for us? Uh, me personally, I would not take probiotics. Hmm. Um, what is going on right now is it's sort of an epidemic of SIBO, which is um, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. And my personal belief is that it's due to people taking too many probiotics. And what happens is it can't 100% control where those things open up in the gut. And so what you're getting is uh, good bacteria in the wrong place. Um, the thing with probiotics is there is a place for them you know, in certain cases, like, like very specific conditions. Um, that's something for like a practitioner who really knows what they're doing, you know, to kind of administer, but there's really no reason for us to go out of our way mm-hmm. to eat probiotics no. to gain more yeah, health. No. And, and maybe they're not necessarily uh, all that negative as long as we're not consuming them uh, all the time. Yeah. You'll probably do more harm than good. And um, the other, the other side of that is the gut is so rapidly modifiable through food substrate that there's no need. I mean, you can, you can completely con- and totally recolonize the gut in about five to seven days. Ah, that makes a lot of sense because then that's what people are taking the probiotic for, right? That's what they think it's doing. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's also, you, it's easy to prove. So if you want to prove it in the opposite way, um, just go eat a bunch of junk food. Okay. And watch how bad your gas right, is. I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Your stomach blows up, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fermentation. So the key idea is um, fermentation makes bacteria. For every 100 grams you ferment, you'll make 30 grams of bacteria, okay? It's just a question of which direction. And that's how obesity works. So obesity is meal-to-meal reprogramming of the gut bacteria based on substrate. So you're eating uh, this junk, and what it does is it's you're fermenting bacteria that make you crave more junk, and then it just sort of snowballs. You can do the same thing the opposite direction, and you can rapidly ferment. Do you go into anything in terms of this book and in terms of people that have IBS? Mm-hmm. Um, because I know a lot of individuals that no matter what they do, their IBS will go away for a small period of time. Boom, it'll flare back even if they're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So what, I guess, in what direction can individuals go 
to, to, to deal with something like that? Yeah. So the first thing to understand is, um, you've got to kind of get into things mechanistically looking at, looking at IBS. Mm -hmm. Um, the first thing to understand is that if the gut lining is worn down normally under normal conditions, like, like a healthy gut, uh, the metabolite butyrate is kind of the bread and butter of the gut. It's it's what feeds the colon directly, the colonocytes in the colon, and in the in the in the intestines, it helps restore the gut lining by making cross reactions that feed bifidobacteria. So that's in a healthy gut. What happens in a compromised gut, where you've already got sort of inflammatory issues going on, is that the main transporter for butyrate uh, is impaired. It doesn't work. Okay, it's called MCT1. So when that transporter is impaired, butyrate cannot rescue the gut. So what you'll see is people that have issues in the gut and then they eat fibers and the issues get worse. Okay, so what's going on is those fibers are fermenting, they're making bacteria, they make butyrate, and then the gut can't use butyrate. Okay, so in the early going, if you've got like, you know, serious, um, serious issues in the gut, Kind of a, a good protocol is to marry a combination of fasting with things like orange juice. So what you'll see in the gut... So it, drinking orange juice as you're fasting? In that period or outside of that period? Uh, you fast for a while. Yeah. And then you have a little bit of orange juice. Okay. okay? Hmm. And you start to introduce that in a little bit. So what you're doing is two things. Number one, um, what you'll see in the impaired gut is you'll see a high degree of oxidation in the gut. Okay. And so in the lining of the gut, you've got a lot of redox action going on. Um, so ascorbate helps heal the gut and you'll see, you see low ascorbate in the gut. So if you can replete ascorbate in the gut, you can get, uh, all this redox signaling down at the same time, fasting will help acromancia to restore a little bit. And so just sort of as a starter protocol, uh, you can, you can kind of start on something like that. I have a guy that, um, I was talking to that, uh, got this and we put him on that and it's working pretty well. So far, and is that pulp uh, and or like normal you want to you want to get the pulp out? Pulp get, out, yeah. Good question. Yeah, okay. get the pulp out. Yeah, yeah. Fasting has definitely because like I've struggled with IBS in the past. I think last time you were on here, we were talking a lot about my gut and everything, and it's gotten significantly better. Mm -hmm. And I think because of fasting, it has mm -hmm. improved even more so since then. Um, and so I was actually going to ask you about that, but you answered it right away. So like, I mean, is is it as simple as that? Like fasting with orange juice? Like, is there any other mm -hmm other steps to this protocol that we can implement? Yeah. So the, the best, the best of all worlds is a combination of fasting with very specific feeding. So what you want to do is you want to rebuild bifidobacteria in the gut, get bifidobacteria levels up, allow fasting to build acromancia up, but then feed acromancia directly through sort of feeding bifidobacteria. And, and then one of the, one of the things I use in the book is uh, apple skins. So the pectin in apple skins can, um, it's one of the very few ways to feed acromancia directly. Another thing to consider is uh, how much nitrogen you're getting in the diet. So when the gut is compromised, um, you have to be very careful about very high nitrogen, nitrogen loads from the diet, because what you're going to do is you're going to change up uh, nitrogen utilization from internal to external in the gut, and that feeds entire different taxa of bacteria. Um, so getting protein intake down, combination of fasting, combination of things like orange juice, and then very specific patterns of feeding, very specific things. So just to walk through a list, you'd want to look at um, uh, things like apple skins to start. You'd want to look at things like um, uh, very, very key things like human milk oligosaccharides, um, <clears throat> 
they are that's what you had me take to get over uh being lactose intolerant right and then it, it, it completely worked. went away. Not yeah. only did it go away, it never came back. I right. wanted to ask him about that right. too. Yeah, fucking gone. Right. Yeah, we, we completely just blasted it out of there. Yeah, that's wow. amazing. I uh, yeah. took a baby formula right. and put it in my protein shakes right. for like a month. Right, gone forever. Yeah, it had what was it called again? It's like IOS or what's it called there? It's called a HMO. FOS or something. Uh, uh, well, it's HMO, human milk oligosaccharide. HMO. Okay, that's yeah. what it was. Yeah, yeah. I have a, a section in my book called. Um, uh, carb training and it's in a chapter called the three genomes where um, long story short all these things you think are diseases like lactose intolerance and gluten intolerance th- no those don't even really exist what you have is a bunch of missing bacteria and you can train in the ability to have any kind of carb just by training in the bacteria that digest those carbs so there's this paradox the foods that give you the problems um, make the bacteria that solve the problem. <laughs> so you have to figure out a way to maybe get in uh, small doses. Very, very small doses yeah. of things. So what what I have people do typically is um, just hormesis. You just you start with a thimbleful of whatever your your thing. So let's say it's lactose. You start with um, like a thimbleful of cheese. You know, just like this much, just very small amounts. And then uh, combined with some of these other protocols, you just start upping it just a little bit. What you're doing. Every time you do that, <clears throat> you take it in, it's going to ferment. And as you ferment, you make a little bit of bacteria. And then you just start conditioning the gut. And you can train in digestion of carbs. A little bit like periodization in your training. You yeah. add a little bit each time you go back to the gym, right? Yeah, it's, it's just, it's hormesis. It's just a food. So right. you, yeah. you just perked up a bunch of people's ears by talking about possibly getting over like a, a gluten intolerance. Yeah. So can you explain mm-hmm. a little bit more on that? Yeah, so... Um, Basically, everything you've ever been told is wrong. (laughs) And I'm completely serious. Mm -hmm. Um, The prevailing belief is that the problem is the foods. That's based on an incorrect idea. So I just avoid all all these things that could be problematic and I'll be good. Right. Yeah. And so from that, you get all this stuff like the FODMAP diet and all these other things. That's based on an idea that's not accurate. It's based on the idea that the human genome controls carb metabolism. It's not accurate. your body works on three genomes. It works on the human, the mitochondrial, and the bacterial genome. And it's the interplay of those three genomes that dictate the active state of your body. So you can acquire the genes you need to digest all those things. And in the specific case of um, glutens, uh, there's a bunch of research I list in here, like one study after another, that shows when you replete bifidobacteria in people with gluten intolerance, uh, the, the words that they use in the in this research is, Sidesteps. <laughs> so, <laughs> sidesteps, gluten intolerance. Ew. Hmm. How, how do you sidestep an intolerance? It's because it was never there to begin with. The issue is just simply that you're missing the bacteria that have the genes to digest those things. And what there's a growing body of research on shows clearly that when you replete bifidobacteria levels in the gut, gluten intolerance goes away. Yeah, Rob Wolf used to be immensely sick from uh, any, any sort of dairy at all mm. um and he was that way with a lot of other things he had i was a, too a, a gluten issues as well and yep. that's how he came along with the paleo solution and that's how he's mm. you know he's written books and he does seminars and does all kinds of stuff but i just spoke with him a couple of days ago and he was telling me that he's drinking milk wow <laughs> so i mean yeah there's there's definitely there's definitely a lot of proof uh in in what in what you're saying do you kind of think so after you know listening to what you just said right there do you think that 
you know, I, I hear people, they kind of always say, oh, you know, we're, we're all so different. You know, there's yeah. not, there's mm-hmm. not one mm-hmm. diet that's perfect mm-hmm. for, for all of us. And I always kind of think it's bullshit because I think that we are so much more similar than we are different. <laughs> and I, yeah. I understand that like, okay, environmental, like the way that you're brought up. And so, yeah, maybe at this stage in our life, let's say two individuals are both 40 years old or something. Maybe we have become different, mm-hmm. but we have access to most of the same things. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. feel that way? hundred percent. So there's this big push towards personalized nutrition, personalized <laughs> nutrition I'm gonna do or, or genetic nutrition. <laughs> you can't just take someone else's diet and yet, uh, yeah so they're 23 and me and yeah, all this stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's just, oh, so God. here's the thing the um the 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 macro nutritional drivers are more important in most cases than the individual ones example um there's massive commonalities driving the aging process nutritionally related i mentioned b vitamin production and vitamin d in the liver those two combined if you fix those two things you will get a bigger bang for the buck then, you know, your massive individual nutrient analysis, blah, 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 blah. The commonalities are where the bang for the buck is. And when you fix the big common issues, um, a lot of the personal issues go away. Would about, o- overeating be in that category as like the, the kind of the macro thing? Like the people just, they overeat, right? right? I mean, that's a huge driver of, of a lot of these diseases, correct? That's What's a, your yeah. thoughts on that? That's a, it's a big topic, um, really big topic. It's it's difficult to just you know give a single answer to that, but um, a lot of what we think of as overeating in the modern era, it's driven by fat loss. It's driven by the mechanistic outcome of fat loss, and there's all these things that happen post fat loss that people are in the jet wash of, and so we've been looking at it like <clears throat> you know you've got to do something and take charge and solve the problem. What I've seen over a 40-year period is um, it's not lack of trying that's the problem. Like if you go and interview like the general population, again, you guys are in the 12% of people that have metabolic health. But if, when you get outside of that and you look at you know, the average person, it's not lack of trying. There's, there's lots of trips to the going to make a change well. Yeah, there's I, a lot I just, of people that lost a lot of weight, but then they gain it back. I've got a guy right now who's um, uh, uh, my partner, Robert Reams. Um, we're working on a guy uh, we just did yesterday, a Dr. Phil show on this guy and he's um amazing story but i'll tell you um he was 700 pounds he lost 450 holy shit and then he gained it all back all back yeah yeah and so it's not lack of trying that's not the problem what there's an unacknowledged problem and when you begin to survey the the 88 percent of the population you go oh how many of you have tried a weight loss program you're going to see mostly like 99% of the hands go up. Mm-hmm. How many of you tried two, three, four? The hands are all up. 10, the hands are still up, okay? So the issue isn't lack of trying. There's an unacknowledged problem, and it's the consequences of fat loss. That's a big, big driver of what's going on. It's never been quantified. It's never been talked about. Mm. But it's, uh, the irony is this. Yeah, this entire industry that's based on something that's not true. The, what they're telling you is if you just shrink fat cells, You've solved the problem. Well, the irony is none of that's been based on what happens when you actually shrink fat cells. It's never even been inventoried. If you start, and I, I inventoried in here. Here, I'll show it to you guys. Uh, I remember you uh, kind of painting this picture for us of, um, I think you were talking about almost like a spider web type effect where the fat cells uh, shrunk because you did lose weight. 
but they still have that flexibility to go right back to where they were, right? It taps. So like they're almost like they're being pulled on even when they're shrunken, right? Yeah, you can see it right there. So this is what you're up against. Okay, this is on one side of the equation is fat loss. On the other side is everything that happens as a result of fat loss. Mm. And then when you go through and you inventory every one of those things, yeah. it's a reset. The, sorry, the, uh, the, the biggest driver of the whole thing is the mechanobiology of shrinking fat cells. And it's never even been talked about or inventoried. When you shrink fat cells, you reprogram cells through shearing stress and, tra- shearing stress and traction stress. Mm-hmm. And the net result of that is for most people to lock in weight gain. And part of locking in weight gain is overeating. It just, it doesn't happen until later. And so we're not linking it to, you know, what you did two years ago. Right. So So it's not just losing the weight. It's at the end of the weight loss, trying to deal with all of these different things that happen, like getting rid of them so that you don't have to, so you don't gain the weight back pretty much. We use these words um, like weight loss and intermittent fasting and fat loss, Mm -hmm. but your body, all your body sees is shrinking fat cells. Mm. shrinking fat cells to the body has always there's just one word the body understands is starvation it doesn't matter what you call it you can call it you know oh, I, I i got in shape well, the body just saw shrinking fat cells so the body has um thousands of years of programming to defend the to defend you against dying from shrinking fat cells and all that stuff comes into play so you you may have you may have programmed yourself to let's say weigh around 300 pounds and so uh i guess maybe a simplified version of maybe what you're saying, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that if you now made yourself 200 pounds, you still have that programming inside your body to be 300 pounds. Uh, mm, I mean, no. Um, yeah, no. Yeah, no. Um, I, I guess the way I would put it would be that um, think of feast and famine. So there's one nutritional constant throughout all of history for all mammals, and that is famine and feasting. All mammals share that. All mammals share survival defense mechanisms to protect against famine. So you guys, again, being in the 12% that actually have metabolic health, <clears throat> here's what you're seeing. So you'll do a contest or you'll do something, you'll, you'll get in shape, okay? And so just think of like a, um, think, think of, think of like a, a seesaw here, okay? So, so you, you reduce body fat, okay? Now at the end of that, all these mechanisms start to kick in. The, the job of these mechanisms is to restore body fat, and usually it does this, okay? Now, in your case, what you're actually mimicking is if you use an ancestral narrative and you go back, there was a starvation. Uh, we finally, you know, killed a water buffalo, ate the whole thing, you know, so weight came back on. But there wasn't a refrigerator lying around. Mm. So we needed to go back out and exert ourselves and get more food again. So there was this continuous exertion after putting the weight back on. You guys are mimicking that through your lifestyle. Mm. Most people can't do that. And so what you see is they drop the weight but they don't have the means to replicate continuous exertion. And so the weight comes back and it comes back. And, and actually what you're doing long-term is you're locking in long-term weight gain. Yeah. So in terms of continuous exertion, cause I mean, I've heard that you mainly work out one time a week right now, or is that, do you still, do you work out more than that exercise wise? No, it's been about, uh, I keep trying to, but it's been about once for so, quite some time now. Yeah. Long time. So in, in for like, do you think that, how would you, I guess, tell the general population or help them with figuring out how to do a continuous exertion other than like maybe just walking lifestyle, I'm guessing is how you deal with it and not just going to the gym and exercising? Yeah, there's an uh, idea I put in the book called the integrated interval. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that, um, that young bodies have very 
distinct differences from old bodies. Um, you can work out a lot and, and take a bunch of stuff and be jacked and still have like an old body. Okay. Young bodies are very, very different. Like a young body, <clears throat> we'll do it afterwards. We'll just, with no warm up, we'll go spread. Okay. <laughs> young bodies can do that. Like all kids and all teenagers can just without any warm up, just bam, take off. Um, as you get past a certain age, you can't do that kind of stuff. So there's a concept in the book I put called the integrated interval, which is <clears throat> um, if you think about just if you've ever run an all out quarter, an all out quarter one has the power to wipe you out for a day. Yeah. Like, like, like a full out quarter. Okay. Well, if you just took that and broke it into 20 second intervals, <clears throat> um, you're getting most of the same benefit. The trick is to do it without all the other accoutrement, which is, you know, getting dressed and warming up and. It's just 20 seconds, no warm-up, back to what you were doing. 20 seconds, no warm-up, back to what you are doing. And then integrating that throughout your day every day. And if you'll do that, um, the body's adaption to that is to get really strong really fast and condition you to stay in a certain state. And then hanging on to youth is just really about hanging on to that little fermenting ember of continuous exertion every day through these little 20-second intervals. Hmm. So I'm always doing these little 20-second intervals and I just don't warm up. I just go do them and I go back to whatever. So that way the exertion that you're able to put in isn't going to be that great because you're not warmed up. I mean, it's still hard, yeah. right? And I'm sure you've gotten used to it and you've probably gotten better at it. Right. But is that kind of the idea behind it? You're not going to be able to go 100%, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. But but to your point too, you, you get kind of used to it. And, you know, like when if I'm out of it and I start doing it, my – my closest is maybe 60, but then if you're just doing it every day, your 60 becomes 90, and you just go out and you can do a 90. Wait, does, sorry, does this just look like, because in my head, I'm picturing you walking down a sidewalk just normally, and then just going to us, just taking off into a sprint. Is that what that kind of looks like? Like, you just, do you do something else? Do you Everybody's use, like, oh, fuck, get yeah. out of the way. <laughs> well, I'm no, just, yeah, how's that look? And I'm just thinking yeah. in scene, but you probably can't do that. <laughs> no. Right away. Hey, where are you going? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, God. <laughs> Yes. Is he carrying a purse? What is he Did you touch a small child? Yeah, exactly. What's happening here? What's this guy's issue? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm a nerd, man. I'm, most of my days like this in a computer, and then I'll just put it down, go do my thing, come back, and okay. you know, just go back to it. Yeah. Um, where it really matters most, though, is is at bedtime. That's the one that really matters. So, um, at bedtime, there's a there's a subset of that which is just a couple things involving um, really. Uh, f- uh, flexibility and circulation and takes it's like brushing your teeth Mm -hmm. i use the analogy of brushing your teeth you put a minute at night two minutes into taking care of your teeth allocating a minute or two at bedtime to a very few things has a difference over time that's Mm -hmm. gigantic so you you mentioned flex so what are those few things? Is it like doing one of those maybe sprints, stretching? What 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 are those things? Uh, It's a couple of yoga flows with an ancestral flat squat. Just nothing big. Just, oh. you know, like t- uh, I'll do two to four at bedtime with, with the ancestral squat. Which I'm sure you guys. Dude, I need your, I need this book. <laughs> yeah. I need this book. 20, uh, your 20 second sprints. Are you actually just kind of like going outside and sprinting? Are you going to a track? I mean, you were, you mentioned like that you don't need those things. So you're not really changing your clothes or anything like that. Or are you getting on a no. stationary bike just, or how are you doing? Just, the only thing is I, I would wear different shoes, but yeah. no, I'm just, just, I do that often here. I just bounce from here and I go right in the gym and I just start working out uh-huh. in whatever I have mm-hmm. just to, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. like uh, a lot of barriers, you know, just to slow me down or stop me from doing something. So I'm like, F it. I'll just go in there. It's just the way I am right now. Oh, and yeah, start training. Sounds like fun going and doing like suicides on the uh, turf every day. Yeah. Like a handful of times. And then 20 Basically, seconds, yeah. uh, why the 20 second sprint? Mm-hmm. Why, why that, uh, amount? 
Uh, that's that's kind of your your twenty second interval from you know hit training, and right. and it's about it's about without any warm up. What's at the the edge of safe to do? Right. You know, it's the repeated attempts where you're going to get injured. So um, if I'm really tight and and doing it, then I'll, I'll run within my limits. But uh, there's some days are better than others, and I'm just like you know, bam, out and get it and and good. But what you, you have see, a distance in mind? How uh, far usually, are you? usually about you know. I'm shooting for 200 meters, but I'm not that fast anymore. So, right. you know, yeah. And I, I go through periods where like everything's clicking and, and I feel like, oh, wow, I'm, I've still got it. And then, you know, I have a bad week and it's like, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Okay. <laughs> but um, it, so there's all this research about sedentary lifestyles now. Um, the, the real problem is your blood. That's the real problem. And it's the quality of your blood. And it's the mechanical nature of what's going on in the blood. And there's all these different factors. It's where your blood is being created from. Is it being created from stem cells or is it being created from hematopoiesis? Um, And it's the actual uh, deformability of blood cells with age. So the real problem is that the blood itself is sort of going downhill. And so because it's going downhill, when you're sitting for any length of time, you have blood that's half as efficient as it was when you were younger, which means hypoxia as sort of a way of existing is sort of taking hold. And so by integrating these little things throughout the day, you're sort of pushing that clock back a little bit. Yeah. I'm try- Okay. There's a lot there in terms of the sedentary lifestyles. Like for example, the blood, can we talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. How does one, I guess, address that? Mm-hmm. I mean, other than like, you know, not sitting all day, you know, right. standing, getting a standing desk or whatever. How do you address that issue? What do, what should people do there? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a big topic. There's, it's a kind of an emerging field. Yeah. Um, and there's a, a lot of things that are going to be rapidly coming online. Just to give you a 20 second scope of the problem. What's happening is when you were young, your blood had a very specific composition and ratio of types of immune cells to red blood cells, okay? And it's sort of optimal. And as you get older, you get fewer red blood cells and fewer types of immune cells and more of other types of immune cells. Mm-hmm. The blood is essentially mimicking um, a giant injury is what's happening. Okay. And so what your blood is starting to do is be a pro-inflammatory medium as you're getting older. That, that's kind of what's going on. And that affects muscle recovery. So young muscle and young blood are two sides of the same coin. They're both related. Um, one of the reasons you see uh, muscle recovery decrease with age is because the quality of the blood itself is decreasing. So there's this field called parabiosis where we're looking at, we're looking at young blood transfusions and you know, the effect that has in the body. A um, couple keys that seem to play into all this. <clears throat> one is timing. Two is massage. Uh, three are, there's, there's a host of small molecule activators and key blood proteins that seem to be emerging that we can target. If we can rewind real quick, when you say timing, mm-hmm. timing of what? Mm-hmm. So as you begin to age, <clears throat> there are very specific proteins. Uh, one of them is called ERK1 half, and it is a growth protein. And Basically, what it does is it controls the stemness uh, uh, and the growth cycles of muscle. And when you're younger, what happens is you get done working out, ERK shoots up like this, okay? And then it does this. When you get older, it does this. Mm. And then it does this. 
So what's happening is this guy, sore, recover. This guy, no recovery, just sore. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. That's that's what's happening with age. So getting ERK up higher uh, post workout is one of the ways that we can we can start to begin to turn turn the clock back a little bit with that. One of the ways that seems to work really well, it's super simple. Anybody can do is massage. So there, uh, I was talking to Ron Penn about this, and Ron does body work a lot. And if you're around Ron, he's just always pumped. And he's just always yeah. full. And he gets pissed at you too if you don't get body work done. You getting body work done? You yeah. getting body work done? Yeah. He calls you out, yeah. and you're like, yeah. Yeah. And "I didn't spend my five grand this week on that." <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> exactly. yes. That's his. That's it. That's his tip to be healthy. He's like, "You got to be really. You got to be really well get off." Rich. Yeah, yeah. That, did you get your five thousand square foot gym in your house yet? Uh, no, Ron. I didn't <laughs> sell a food company yet. <laughs> By the way, did you guys see the pop tart? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah! Oh my god, amazing! So Legend, I have legendary food. Listen to this. They made a pop tart. Yes. Listen to listen to this. We're, Life <laughs> is complete. I have a text on my phone of me sending Ron Penna a text, probably about six months ago, mm-hmm. saying you need to tell the powers that be to make a pop tart. Really? And he said he said okay, and gave me like a little thumbs up. Mm. I sent him the screen capture of that last night, and he said. I did tell the powers that be, and we got Pop-Tarts. Thank so you, Mark. No I, way. When, when you guys told me, I think you told me, Andrew, that they made a Pop-Tart, and then Andy told me, I was like, I think, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I told him, <laughs> you need to make a Pop-Tart. I need to be careful with what I tell him yeah. to do. Because I remember, like, we were talking oh, to him, and you're like, what, what's the deal? Where's the Pop-Tart? And he's like... Uh, I can't say too much, but yeah, and he know. was yeah, he was kind of like uh, I think he like said something about how you can't make one or something too, right? He was like <laughs> probably totally screwing with us. I don't know. Ron Penna works in mysterious ways. Oh and, my uh, god, d- oh, man! Legendary uh, Foods Pop Tarts. That thing's going to be all over the place yeah. at the LA Fit Expo. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna see if I can survive off just that. Then have you tried it? Have you tried it? <laughs> I haven't tried it yet. Oh my gosh, he gave me one a couple months ago. Yeah, it, it, the funny thing was I was in Target like a month earlier with my with my wife, and I was like, somebody should make a low carb pop tart. And then, so sure enough, he tells me, yeah, yeah, and he Wham. brings the thing, and it's like it tastes like a pop tart. That's oh, great. Man. Yeah, oh, I'm gonna live on the thing. That's huge. It's gonna flip the fitness uh, industry upside <laughs> yeah. down because oh, oh people gosh. have been talking about pop tarts forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's huge. I think it's the greatest thing ever. I really do. I would yeah. love to just be in the room when Joel and uh, Ron are speaking to each other. Because I'd imagine over probably like, I don't know, around the one and a half hour mark, you guys just start speaking in code. Like, and like people around are just like, like what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just like making sounds. They're like, what happened? Did they break? It's like, no, they're just in their own language now. We have these, we have these, we have these <laughs> crazy mind melds. Yeah. Uh, just like, yeah, we'll get together at this uh, secret location and then we'll just sit there and kind of go down the rabbit hole. And sometimes it's too much for us. Like, sometimes we're just, ah, okay, I'm a, yeah. <laughs> You know, and then we got to translate it, transition into something else, something nerdy. But uh, yeah, he's he's a brilliant guy. That's brilliant guy. awesome, dude. Yeah, and the, the pop tart thing is real. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned something earlier about testosterone and sleep, which I think perked a lot of men's ears when they heard it, but it was never talked about. Mm-hmm. What what were you talking about there exactly? Hey, well, your brother's sleeping for sixteen hours or something like that, right? Yeah. Uh, so the sex hormones just have a lot to do with staying young. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it makes sense just from a. I, I like ancestral narratives, but we always have to remember that they're not facts. They're just sort of stories that we tell ourselves and, you know, they can change, but they're helpful. So um, a, an ancestral narrative is just the idea that um, as long as you're sexually viable, you know, you're of sort of, you're kind of of a benefit. And 
your body's going to keep you young. And so keeping the sex hormones mm. working has a lot to do with keeping the body young. And if you can keep the body young, you'll solve a lot of problems. Mm. So getting the body to make testosterone while you're sleeping is uh, a big, big deal. A big, big deal. And it's not that hard to do. Um, you can do it with a combination of uh, feeding patterns, sort of high fat um, at bedtime, and a very few simple things. I mean, stupid simple things like ZMA and vitamin D and things like that. Okay. Is there no negative impact of eating before bed? You know, some people think that you should eat, you know, well before you go to sleep and stuff like that. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that? That fits into what, when, and how. Um, so everything should fit into what, when, and how. And there, there's a, there's a, if you get away from the absolutes and then you just kind of quantify functional outcomes, like, like my functional outcome right now is I want to have a couple nights of making testosterone. Okay, great. So in order to do that, what do I need? Mm, I need a lot of fat while I'm sleeping. I need vitamin D. I need some minerals. I need a few basic things. And so I'm going to have two, three nights, maybe, maybe even one or two nights a week where I do that. Um, and there's a negative, a downside, which is if I have too big a meal, I might disrupt autophagy later on, you know, during the night. But the other side of that is I can fast in the morning a little bit and sort of offset that. And so when you put it into a functional outcome, um, it gets you away from the absolutes. So there's, there's always negatives to everything. You mentioned to me uh, in the past, um, I, I think you mentioned to me, if I remember, remember correctly, uh, having some issues with fasting and how it, uh, it kind of screwed you up. Um, so we talk about fasting quite a bit on here, but mm -hmm. I also, you know, I warn people, you know, if you're new to a diet, you know, there's, in my opinion, there's no reason to even try to really mess with fasting until you can get a handle on, on starting to implement some, uh, you know, nutritious foods and get used to the, get, get used to the diet that you selected and don't really worry about fasting for a little while. Um, and then also I've had my own issues with fasting where I fasted, uh, you know, just intermittent fasting, you know, just doing a 16 or 18 hour fast or something like that. And then two or three days later, I found myself, you know, uh, at the bottom of a Ben and Jerry's, uh, you know, fish food ice cream or something like that. So uh, <laughs> how can we kind cream. of, uh, you know, what are, some of the, what are some of the negative impacts of fasting and, and what did it do to you? Yeah, I talk a lot about that in my book. Um, I'm here because of the negatives I experienced with what you would call time-restricted feeding and fasting in the early 90s. Um, quick backstory, uh, in the early 90s, uh, metrics came out. Jeff Everson was a big promoter and Jeff did an article talking about how he was just eating one meal a day in the evening. And so, you know, I'm just like, okay, well, that's what I was that same guy who read the Jeff and Corey. They were, they were huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I started doing that and I went on metrics and, um, a lot of things in, in biology do this in the short term and then this in the long term. So what happened to me was, um, I was ripped to the bone for a long, long time, about three, four years. And I was in that, you know, advice giving stage. Oh, dude, what are you doing? And well, Here's what I'm doing. <laughs> kind of like I had it figured out. And then about year four. One metrics packet a day. <laughs> yeah. Year four, year five, um, I started eating uncontrollably. And like, I just, I, you know, but there was a Burger King. I was there and I didn't know what I'd done. I, I was like, I, I've never done this in my life. I'm just eating all the time. What's going on? And that set me down this path to figure out what I had messed up. And it was a long road to fix it and a long road to figure it out. And it almost feel like it made you crazy in a way from a food perspective. It's just, it was the weirdest, um, it was the weirdest sort of thing. It was just like, just, just never, never satisfied. And uh, it took me years to figure out what I'd done. And, and the research wasn't there yet on the gut hormones and PYY and all that stuff. But I had a, a great short-term benefit massive long-term problems. And so I talk a lot about in the book about um, right now we're in this era where everybody's jumping on the fasting bandwagon. Mm -hmm. What you have to understand about the body is that 
there's usually most things um, have a long-term effect that opposes the short-term effect. I mean, it's true of drugs. You know, you, mm-hmm. you go on an SSRI reuptake inhibitor, uh, you're great for a while, and then you start tanking down. And it's true of food. It's true of anything. And so um, you have to know where the road ends before you jump on it, you know, so you can avoid the pitfalls. And for me, it was huge, like huge. I'd never had problems eating, and I just couldn't stop eating. And were you utilizing intermittent <clears throat> fasting, or were you doing more prolonged fast? Or In today's language, it would be probably time-restricted feeding. You know, so I was eating one meal a day in the evening, and then if I was hungry, I'd have a packet of metrics during the day. But uh, what I realized later on was that there were entire hormonal domains I was depriving the body of. So one of them was satiety, another was fullness, another was flavor. And the all the body sees is shrinking fat cells and starvation. And the body has very specific defenses against those it things. It keeps track of that shit. It, it upregulates it. Yeah. yeah. It, takes, it takes a while. It took years. Was this more so because of your food choices when you were eating or because of the, like, the act of time-restricted feeding? Time-restricted feeding. Okay. Yeah. For me. So, so then for people that do utilize time-restricted feeding, like myself, right. how do you combat that potential long-term effect? Because I haven't felt that yet, mm-hmm. but you have me very scared. <laughs> how long have you been doing it for? Uh, probably like close to like a year and a half. A year, okay. It'll be close to maybe two yeah. years soon. Yeah, you're, you're, so. in the, you're in the safe zone still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just like, yeah, what, what like, and also when this happened to you, was it a fairly sudden thing? Was it gradually you just started going to Burger King and then going to Burger King it was, even more? It was, it was gradual. What I started seeing was um, the things that had worked so well stopped working as well. They just weren't working as well, weren't working as well. And then the other side of that was I was just eating more and eating more. And I was like, what is, what is this, man? And it was, it was a weird thing. It was, I started doing it in about 1992 and it was really about 1997 that it started kicking in. And um, it took years for me to fix. It really did. How do um, we, how do we avoid that? Just we, you know, maybe be a little bit cautious and understand that like, if we are going to utilize some intermittent fasting, that it would be, maybe be a great idea to take little breaks from it and things like that. Short answer, yes. Um, long answer, or, or abbreviated long answer, because I know I'm long-winded, um, would be if you're going to follow a strategy that is not based on what's true about your body, you're not going to be happy when you get to the end of the road. That's just the truth. So you have to understand how the body works, and you have to understand the effect of, quote-unquote, starvation on the body. The body has very specific mechanistic defenses against starvation. And I inventory them in the book and I, you know, I go through and we look at them all one by one. And so you're working against all of these things. So the, the short answer is you just have to essentially hack those things by mixing in counterpoints. So there, you, you did, mm-hmm. when you did your um, post, uh, post-competition thing, right. a lot of the things you did were actually designed to counter most of those things. So there was a, a gut biome intervention we did with you. There was um, a leptin intervention where it was specifically designed to counter the post-fat loss leptin shift. And so you have to inventory how the body works, and then you attack each point is what you do. And that's a lot of what you did. Do you still suggest fasting or do you, you know, I mean... Not if you're not sleeping. Okay. You mentioned it a little bit, but okay. If sleep is a problem, then that wouldn't be a good idea. Yeah. No. So the reason we fast is to get... So let, let's break it down. So what are you getting from fasting? You're getting autophagy. You're getting HDAC inhibition. Uh, you're getting AMPK and CERT1 activation. HDAC is what, by the way? Um, histone deacetylase. Okay. Uh, so um, let's it real quick, uh, histone deacetylase. So you have um, 
the body runs on data, mm-hmm. runs on information and instructions. And the body has um, a couple different ways it gets data, it reads data, and a couple different points that data is moved around. Um, microRNAs are one, DNA methylation is another, histone deacetylase inhibition is the other. Um, it's probably the most important. And really what it is is <clears throat> in the science, they use these giant words uh, to confuse people. It means on. That's what it means. <laughs> That's what it means. It, it just means on. Like, oh, we can read it. It's on. Okay, great. Um, so while you're fasting, DNA becomes readable. Okay. That's it's a bigger topic, but it becomes readable. So these are things you get from fasting. Uh, you get NAD repletion. All those things are present during sleep, but they're stronger during sleep because uh, we are diurnal creatures and those things have a natural home in what's called the genetic rush hour. Okay, the genetic rush hour is in the, in the deep stretch of the night, roughly around 4, 4 a.m. And that's when all of the most important genes in the body are activating for keeping your body young. So sleep is intermittent fasting. It's just in the perfect timing. So right about that stretch of the night, all those things should be going off. Um, with age, they start to decline for a number of reasons, which we can talk about. But if you're not sleeping, you have to fix sleep first before you fast because fasting can disrupt REM sleep. Mm-hmm. So REM sleep disruption, there's a, not agreement on this in the science, but there's good reason to believe that it's very important. So if you're not dreaming, uh, it's a big deal. Now, you did mention older individuals and a lot of older people, I mean, they all report, I can't sleep as much or as right. long as when I was younger and my right. sleep is more disruptive. Right. So, I mean, a lot of people find it difficult to, right. to fix that. How, right. how do you go about that? So there's several steps. Um, order of operations to fix that is... Part of the reason is due to a decline in NAD. So uh, for the audience, um, there's a lot of talk about NAD lately, and but just for the sake of going over it, um, NAD is what motor oil is to your car. It's not a fuel, but the engine won't go without it. Okay, It's what powers the reactions. Um, so it's an enzyme, and it's made from niacin, and you need it. So as we get older, a couple things are happening. Basically, the body's treating aging like it's an injury. So all the things that happen in an injury are, are kicking up. Mm-hmm. They're going like this. And those things are cannibalizing NAD. Okay, so specifically immune cell populations. And all this. So what you see is as you get older, you're not sleeping as well. You tend to be more inflamed. And then you get this sort of cyclical thing that's happening where the less you sleep, the less NAD you make. And it sort of becomes this wheel. So repleting and restoring NAD is, is step one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Excuse me. Reducing inflammation is step one. Repleting NAD is step two for very good reasons. Um, and then stepping the body through restoring the things that are lost. So specifically bifidobacteria, vitamin D, all these sort of dials that just go down. And they're very simple, big things, which is why I said the, the macro things are bigger than the individual things. Okay. And I'm throwing a ton of stuff out there. Sorry, but no, this yeah. is great. we can dig into it. Yeah. So then how do, how do we control inflammation then? How do we get that down? Because you've mentioned it twice now being mm-hmm. really, really important with sleep. It's probably the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, spinning down inflammation is uh, a skill. Um, in fact, I just came out with a course on it called How to Age Better. Um, so let me kind of walk you through the big steps of it. Um, first thing is do not supplement with NAD until you get inflammation spun down. The reason 
is that there are very specific um, immune cells that use NAD for fuel, and they're all inflammatory related. So a lot of the newer research is suggesting a, a very specific order of operations to follow before supplementing with NAD. The very first step is you've got to get inflammation down because otherwise what's happening is taking NAD can actually fuel inflammation because it's in fueling the, um, the immune cells that need NAD to proliferate. Okay? So, so let's sort of step through getting inflammation down. Uh, step one is your dietary factors are probably your strongest controls to help get that down. So an easy basic pattern is to combine spinning up bifidobacteria in the body. So the way you would do that, I call it the two-day core pattern, is on the, on, on the day one, you're sequencing very specific foods in the right order. So generally your dark fruits in the morning um, and then uh, more resistant starches in the afternoon. And what you're doing is you're spinning up bifidobacteria during that day. And what we're doing is we are amplifying fasting signals without fasting, by getting the body to make the bacteria that make butyrate while you sleep during the genetic rush hour to amplify all those signals. So those signals are inherently anti-inflammatory. At bedtime, there's a number of steps to ensure you sleep really well. A really great tool is called oleamide. <clears throat> oleamide is, works, on the, works on the CB1 endocannabinoid 1 receptor. And that in combination with melatonin and a couple other little hacks can help you get to sleep. Um, but spinning inflammation down through the production of key bacteria leading into a fast amplifies all the signals of fasting without actually having to fast. And then a pattern of fasting sort of in an amplified state. So one of the, one of the ways you can do that is as you begin to fast on the second day, there are lots of different tool sets you can use to help spin down inflammation. Uh, one of the easiest and best is molecular hydrogen. Um, and there's a number of reasons why that's true. Um, but molecular, you guys have looked at that before? No, I'm no. thinking, uh, where do we get that? Yeah. Same place we get a flux capacitor. <laughs> <laughs> Stop me if I'm running this too fast. Just well, I, I'm just I'm, I'm taking notes and I'm like I'm gonna have to Google that later. I remember when you were talking to me about fasting, you had like foods, you know, and I was like, isn't fasting just like not eating food? Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you had things that are still mimicking fasting yeah. in the body yeah. and still getting the benefits of fasting. Yeah, uh, one of my 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 first project with Quest was um, was creating foods that mimic fasting. This was before there was a fasting mimicking diet. It was was looking at how can we get the benefits of fasting without the downside, without the sleep disruption, without all those things. Mm. So <clears throat> when we look at fasting and we look at what the body needs during fasting, there's a very key idea that pops up. It's called pexophagy. So pexophagy is autophagy of the peroxisomes. Okay, peroxisomes are these little tiny organelles within cells that primarily process long-chain fats. <clears throat> And this gets into sort of a modified view of what drives aging. Long story short, as we get older, there's very specific changes happening in the peroxisomes that are switching on a pro-aging program. And the irony of that is the peroxisomes control an anti-aging program. So there's a switch in these little organelles. And once you understand how to switch it, you can actually switch on the pro-aging program, or excuse me, the anti-aging program. 
The way that's done is by learning how to initiate pexophagy. What pexophagy does is it clears peroxisomes out. So you get rid of the ones that aren't working and you multiply brand new ones. So by keeping the peroxisomes young, a lot of inflammatory issues will go away because they mediate so many things. So amplifying fasting is a thing of spinning up very specific bacteria prior to fasting, then during fasting, taking in very specific foods. So one of those are your omega fats and oleic acid. So you've got the omega-3s and you've got your omega-9s. Your, your first step is your omega-3s because what those do is they make peroxisomes proliferate. Okay, so if you're fasting and then you're having omega-3s on top of that, not MCTs, but omega-3s, the peroxisomes have to process those fats and they're going to proliferate. Okay, and then coming into a second day of fasting, you can begin to shift substrates into oleic acid, so switching to your omega-9s. And what's going to happen as you continue to feed the peroxisomes these fats is they're sort of getting tuned. And then, long story short, coming out of that and switching into glucose will induce pexophagy. So what happens is the peroxisomes are, are tuned up, they're proliferating, they're, they're making new ones, that they're triggering mitochondrial biogenesis, you're fasting, inflammation's going down. And then a period of excessive feeding following that, really what we're doing is mimicking famine and feasting, okay? Um, blows inflammation out, turns pexophagy on. And that, that's what you did after your, um, after your, your yeah, contest. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> now, this sounds like something, obviously, you, you mentioned that this is going to help with inflammation. Um, but you mentioned this is like maybe a two or three day process. Is this something that one who has this type of issue would do every few weeks, once a quarter, like, or is it, is it like, how, like, yeah, how's it timed? Everybody should do this. Like everybody, everybody, this is like a life mm-hmm. skill. Yeah. This is, this is, everybody should learn how to do this. And it's very simple to do. Mm-hmm. Like, like really the, the cool thing, if you step back and look at this, I, I'm throwing out a lot of big words and a bunch of stuff and it's a little new and a little intimidating. But at the end of the day, all I'm saying is eat stuff in a pattern. That's yeah. all I'm saying. So is is this like a weekly thing? Like that's what I'm talking about. Is this like how often do you do this process of eating? Or is this just a way you should be ideally eating all the time? Uh, This particular piece for targeting peroxisomes, um, probably every two weeks. Okay. You know, you can do. Um, The the case I make in the book, a, a foundation for optimal peak human health is combining, combining fibers um, that produce the right bacteria with fasting, with the occasional big meal, all in kind of a sequence that I lay out in the book. Okay. We had uh, Dr. Tony Huge on the podcast before, <laughs> and he talked about uh, SARMs. Okay. And he was talking about the things that SARMs can kind of uh, turn on or stimulate. And he was, even though he is like the guy that brought SARMs to the forefront, or one of the guys that brought SARMs to the forefront, he just said, look, it's not a good idea to keep these things uh, stimulated all the time. It's good to move in and out of it. It sounds like you're saying the same thing, but just with food. Yeah. Um, move in and out of different things. There's different reasons to do th- different things at different times. And while there is a great benefit to fasting, uh, you know, maybe we don't want to take it too far. While there's great benefits to this and that, we got to also realize there's kind of a yin and a yang to each thing that we do, right? I, I would agree with that. Yeah. 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 There's, um, I tried to, I tried to do a master thesis in the book of, uh, giving people a foundation that is um, the single best foundation for health by balancing out a lot of different things. But then the thing that makes it unique is the sequencing and the timing and the matching to not just diurnal rhythm, but circus septin rhythm, which is seven day rhythm, and then even seasons. And so 
once you get that and it sort of sinks in, you've got this thing you do, but it's built with the idea that offsetting, getting off the reservation is just built into it. Mm. And I give these examples in the book of like, okay, here's, here's kind of like a perfect way of doing it. You're, you did it, but then here's dinner with pizza and ice cream. And the offset piece is just built into the next day, so don't even worry about it. And, and then if you want to have a season of being keto, you can do that. Or you want to have a season of being carnivore, you can do that. Yeah, I remember when you were here last time, you talked, you, you know, told us how we could eat ice cream and how we could uh, eat pizza and kind of offset it. I remember when, when you and I were uh, doing some stuff together, you were saying that you kind of, you like to kind of like work in threes. So you have like the meal that you just had, but you know, what did you eat beforehand? And then like, what, you know, what's that next meal going to look like? And you, you tend to balance things out uh, in that way. And you were talking earlier about uh, how balance you feel is a, you know, a key component to this whole thing. And so that's what you're really trying to do. You're trying to just juggle uh, all the hormones in the body and, and try to have it be the most beneficial without uh, ending up running into a brick wall of negative aspects of even something most of us would think uh, is smart to do, which, which is fasting, but you could certainly overdo uh, some of these things and the things that are good for us can end up kind of biting us in the ass in the long run if we're not careful. Yeah, I, I have a chapter in the book dedicated to balance, and there's a couple concepts in there that I think are probably worth talking about. Um, so, in fact, I'll just kind of read some of these. It's, it's, it's interesting when you, when you look at like uh, this. So here is, um, these are just quotes from, quotes from the research, okay? Uh, Chronic inflammation deregulates cellular balance and can drive carcinogenesis, cancer. A hallmark of aging is a decline in metabolic balance. Loss of balance in cartilage contributes to the development of osteoarthritis. Disturbance of systemic iron balance causes two major classes of disease. The disruption of dynamic circulatory balance mediated by the brain causes heart failure. So, I mean, I could have listed 100 pages of this. But what, what this takes us into the camp of is what I offer is the single highest truth of health, which is balance is health imbalance is disease. And it brings us to a super interesting question, which is, will sustained input of healthy things, imbalanced, produce health or disease long-term? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, now let's think about it. Yeah. Water's healthy. What happens if you imbalance water? <laughs> you die. You die. Right. <laughs> you die. Yeah. Um, grains are healthy. What happens if you imbalance grains? Mm. Gut injury. Yeah. Cut injury. Uh, protein's healthy. What if you? What happens if you imbalance protein? So Can now, you, yeah, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> okay. Now we're getting into pissing people off territory. Right. <laughs> let's, let's let's just kind of dive in. So protein's healthy, but if you imbalance protein, what can you get? So you can get you can get an imbalance of bile acids in the gut, which is inherently oncogenic. Um, Brock Lesnar attributes his all of his issues mm-hmm. to imbalancing protein. Um, here's the big one. Fats are healthy. What happens if you imbalance fats long-term? I don't know. So <laughs> I make the case in the book that um, even fats, if you imbalance, well, first of all, there's a ton of research showing You're talking that, about like excessive fats, right? No, just like fats in the diet, if you imbalance fats. Yeah. So there's a whole school of, th- of thought that, or excuse me, a whole school of research that shows mm, high-fat diets are cancer-promoting. <laughs> so then what about like keto diets? What about fats from keto diets? It must always be healthy, right? Right? Mm. Is it? 
Not it's a good question. Yeah, yeah. It's a good question. It's, it's worth talking about. So it turns out, um, I make the case in the book, there's a key compound uh, produced by keto diets. It's uh, what's called an oxidized phospholipid. It's basically, it's called 4-hydroxynoninol, okay? And when you look at 4-hydroxynoninol, it's probably the mechanistic reason that explains much of the benefit of keto diets. And what happens is within the mitochondria, there's a special fat called cardiolipin. When that fat gets oxidized, it produces what's called an electrophile. Uh, it's a highly, 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 highly reactive molecule uh, called 4-hydroxynoninol. <clears throat> and when you look at 4-hydroxynoninol, um, it's a cancer promoter. But what you see in keto diets is when you go on a keto diet, oxidative stress goes up, then it goes down. So what happens is 4-hydroxynoninol gets produced and the body upregulates glutathione production in the mitochondria. So you actually get an improvement in oxidative stress for a while. But then the thing about 4-hydroxynoninol is after a while it accumulates. And so when you see 4-hydroxynoninol, when it begins to get past small amounts in the body, um, it does some interesting things. It, it's a direct cancer promoter. Um, it kills, it explains why keto diets can kill some cancer cells. In other cancer cells, they are able to diffuse 4-hydroxynoninol into adjacent cells where it can promote cancer. Um, in high amounts, it makes cells explode. So there's some research now that is beginning to bubble up that shows damage within the mitochondria in animals for long-term keto diets. Mm -hmm. So it gets to this issue of, thank you, it gets to this issue of healthy things, when imbalanced over very long periods, do they produce health or disease? The jury's probably out, yeah. but there's good reason to take a look at it. So sort of a long-winded Joel explanation. For yeah, I mean, even like lifting. You know, we know that lifting is, you know, has some benefits. But if we, if that's the only uh, form of exercise you ever do, we don't really know. We don't really know how healthy it is. Do you feel like uh, there's enough information? Uh, do you feel like we've been around long enough uh, and with the right, correct scenarios to even know what the perfect diet is? Because, uh, you know, cavemen and, you know, people from thousands of years ago, they – uh, you know, they had a diet that had less of an influence of things that would negatively impact their metabolism, but they also didn't live very long, but they died for different reasons. Now we don't have those same, uh, same type of threats, but we have a lot of food options in front of us to make the correct choices. But it, it almost seems like up until now, we didn't even have the opportunity to really uh, explore how long someone can live and how, how long someone can live a good, strong, healthy life. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think that um, – so uh, short answer, no. I don't think we have – I don't think we really have the answer to everything definitively speaking. Um, I think that um, we're, we're, we, we're getting inklings of better versus not. But I think, again, that issue comes back to – you have to come back to what's most true about the body. And balance is the thing that's most true. And so when you look at inputs, meaning food, you have to look at what is the imbalance that can result from sustained overdoing it from anything. And far from being restrictive, it's actually quite freeing because <clears throat> if you incorporate the idea of seasons into that, it gives you a lot of leeway and it makes a lot of sense. You know, there, there, there are seasons when maybe tons of meat are available and, and it's fine. Um, there are maybe seasons when other things are available 
like, you know, maybe certain types of fruits are in season, things like that. And what we find is these things balance each other out. Where you can begin to get an inkling of, of how things work is some of the newer research looking at the effects of things that we either think are good or bad. And a good example is omega-3s. So <clears throat> newer research with super long-lived people uh, shows that high serum omega-3s in the blood, um, actually you die faster. And the reason is because you get oxidized fats in the blood from high serum omega-3s. And again, that probably doesn't mean that omega-3s are bad. It doesn't mean they're bad. Right. It doesn't mean they're bad. But where you see that stop becoming an issue is like if you look at the Mediterranean diet, well, there's, there's high fats in that diet. Nobody's got a cholesterol issue. Why? Because it's balanced out with phenols. And those phenols offset the oxidation of fats in the serum. So the, the other extreme of that is if you, look at fi- if you look at fiber and protein in the gut. We mentioned earlier when we were talking to your brother <clears throat> about um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an adduct produced by the fermentation of meat in the gut. So fiber ferments in the gut, meat ferments in the gut. It's easy to prove. Take a piece of meat, put it out, leave it out for two days, then eat it. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Bacteria will ferment on that. Well, there is um, there's a there's a cancer promoting compound, um, uh, O six methyl two deoxyguanosine, that forms in the gut when meat ferments in the gut. When you add fiber in with it, fiber acts like detergent and it doesn't form. So there are mechanistically reasons to look at when you begin to balance things out, a lot of the negatives of everything go away. Now, that does not mean you have to eat the four group, food groups at every meal. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that over time, things have to balance out. So then how does this translate? Because, you know, the, the people are doing, like, there's the carnivore diet. Mm-hmm. How do you feel? Day 23, World Carnivore Month. Yeah. yeah. So right. like, how, what should people be thinking about when um, using the carnivore diet as, you know, a way of dropping body fat, et cetera? What, what should they be thinking about long term? I think it would be highly useful um, for a very functional purpose. I think it would be highly useful for a season of really wanting to put a ton of muscle on. Um, I'm just in the camp that thinks that nothing is going to be meat when it comes to putting muscle on. Mm-hmm. And I think there's very good reasons to want to put muscle on for periods, um, particularly as you get older, um, particularly overcoming age-related issues with muscle, one of which is um, intramuscular fat deposits. You really need to knock those out as you get older. Okay. Um, because they create a feedback loop with fat that shrinks muscle. Um, any, any idea of, uh, like the body fat percentage of, you know, some people that are like a hundred years old or some people that live long Because mm-hmm. you know, we, we talk about this quite a bit. Like we don't really see a lot of like jacked people, like, you know, really being like older, you know, mm-hmm. uh, above the age of like 80 or, um, obviously like, you know, it's life is going to kind of like wear you out at some point and right. shit will fall apart at some, at some point. But uh, also even like, uh, you know, you don't really see like someone like six, five or six, seven, six, eight. We don't see a lot of like large individuals. So yes. even in the case of like getting muscle, it's probably makes sense to have like some muscle mass, but maybe that could also be maybe, maybe not something that you're seeking out all the time. There's some really interesting research on muscle mass, protein intakes, age, and inflammation. Um, so just to kind of sum it up, we're, we're looking at loss of muscle with age. We're also looking at um, age-related increase of intramuscular fat. Fat and muscle share some common signaling molecules, interleukin-1 and some other things. What happens is as fat begins to deposit in muscle, it creates a signal feedback loop that suppresses muscle growth with age. 
So we have to hack that. Um, we can hack that with feeding patterns and you know a lot, lot of other things. But at the same time, what's going on is the body's reacting differently to protein intakes at, with age. So there's some evidence that suggests uh, lower protein intakes in about the mid-50s is probably going to be less oncogenic in nature. You probably have a less cancer risk. But then as you get above a certain age, like you get above like late 60s, you actually need more protein intake because wow. things flip. And now what you're seeing is is like sort of the you're past the you're past kind of the cancer onset phase, and now you're into the sarcopenia phase, and now you actually need more protein intake. This is I mean, this is something I've never heard anybody even talk about, but um, that makes so much sense that you would have <laughs> you would you would have different nutritional needs at different ages. I, mean, totally, we, yeah. I guess mm-hmm. we do talk about it like with like a toddler or something, and then and an infant, and then we don't really ever talk about it any further. Mm-hmm. That if you're, you're an adult, you're an adult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're like over the age of 16, it's like, you know, you just start eating kind of all the same stuff uh, the yeah. same way. Yeah, 100%. In fact, um, so when you look at whey proteins, uh, caseins and whey perform very differently in older versus younger populations. So yeah, there's very different needs as you age. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is all crazy, crazy fascinating. Um you and I talked about uh, kratom uh, in the past a little bit, and uh, I was sharing with you. I was like, I, you know, I'm not really sure why, but man, it's helping me a lot with uh, with my fasting. Um, do you have a, a hypothesis on that at all? Do you have a, you know, what are your thoughts on on why that might be happening? I, I, first of all, I wish I knew a little bit more about it. I haven't looked at it that much, but just kind of what I do know is just endocannabinoid receptors. Um, so the the um, endocannabinoid signaling has a lot to do with how well uh, you deal with fasting. And I, I think Kratom probably works on that pathway, but I, I would be the first person to say I'm not an expert in that. Right, area. Right. I, I just haven't looked at it enough yeah. to really say anything super smart. So cool. Yeah. Like, and back to the thing about aging. So yeah, God, there's no way to make this a short answer, but <laughs> um, you're talking to the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So like when you're looking at individuals, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, like you mentioned, you know, at 50, you might mm-hmm. need a decreased protein to take 60 mm-hmm. might need to increase it for different reasons. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to like other groups, like carbohydrates, et cetera, the way, yeah. like I know that, or not that I know, but you know, a lot of people report that, Oh, I used to be able to eat so many carbs in my twenties and in my thirties, right. I'm getting fat. And right. my, like, what do people need to be thinking about as you're getting older in terms of these different groups? Number one thing is um, rate of aging and carbohydrates or insulin production. So number one thing, there's a school of thought that the number one thing driving your rate of aging is insulin production after age 45. Mm-hmm. Um, so that like above any other factor, uh, you can make a very good argument that how much insulin you make past 45 is going to kind of like, you know, veer the, the, the course of what's left. So, so that's, a, that's a big deal to think about and the types of carbohydrates that you're eating and um, all those things. Um, the other side of that is that you also have to think about maintaining the bacteria in the gut. And your best way to do that is through very specific types of fiber and carbs that are, for the most part, insulin sensitizers. They actually make insulin work better long-term. And so all that comes down to... Um, kind of a master thesis of when to do what. And, and that really is the key to everything. It's the question everybody has is what, when, and how, you know? So mm-hmm. getting out of the, you know, good, bad, is fiber good, is meat bad, plants good, you know, getting out of that. It's just everything has a what, when, and a how. Uh, so your big one though, nutrient-wise, would be, um, would be that. The next thing, the next thing is looking at um, kind of, kind of um, 
fat intake and when you're doing that and what kinds of fats specific to to the functions I talked about. Like, so pexophagy is a really big one. Um, most of the emphasis on anti-aging in the fitness community has been on mitochondria function. I'm of the opinion that needs a rethink just because um, we don't really 100% understand how the mitochondria work and targeting the mitochondria with antioxidants may not be a great idea long-term. But something that is probably a little easier to, to control is uh, pexophagy and proliferation of peroxisomes. And that can be controlled through types of fats and fasting. And so that's a big component in things. Got is it. it a little bit hard for you to get your message out? Because, um, you know, you got guys like uh, Mark Sisson and Dave Asprey, um, Rob Wolf. You know, you have, you have people that are, these are all brilliant people and they're all sharing, uh, you know, the, the, those guys have some things in common. But there's a lot of people in the nutrition space. Uh, they they have like a, they have like a cold, hard stance. Like yeah. this is what we're doing. Right. And, you know, I wrote a book called The War on Carbs. And yeah. maybe it's maybe it's easier to get behind. Right. Like, all right, I'm just not going to eat any carbs. Like it's such a simple concept. Mm-hmm. Do you think sometimes you have a hard time maybe getting your message out or having your message be clear uh, with sharing this idea of like balance? I don't know yet. Um, I, that's why I wrote a book. Um, I wrote this. I've always been really concerned with truth and I, I have a lot of people going like, who the hell do you think you are, dude? You think you're some expert or something? And sounds like you're halfway there, at least to be an expert. <laughs> but I, I kind of have to explain this from the preface of like, um, I have literally just been that dude at the front of the line, the consumer, like going, you know, like oh, I could put half an inch on in a day. If I work out 12 hours of curls, I'll do it. You know? And I was that dude. Okay. I've done an inch on the arms in one day. I've done the program. I, I did it too. Did it work for you? It didn't work for me. I got, no, I got sore as hell. No, it gave me like, uh, like rhabdo, you know, it just made yeah. my arms, it made my arms swollen, okay. but it they were like, F right. Up, you know, so this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's been my whole life where I, I got some advice from someone and I did it. Like I did that exactly. And then I was explaining to these guys a little bit about this program. Do you remember? Do you yeah, remember much uh, about it? This, oh yeah, everything. Yeah, okay. So uh, <laughs> late late eighties, uh, early nineties is this kind of. We got to put this program out there. Oh again. Oh shit! This yeah. is real. I this, thought is this is real. Was like a joke. Yeah, the arms in one day. Yeah. No, this is real. So late eighties, early nineties is this kind of like weird time for what we call fitness, and uh, it, it, like there's just a lot of BS out. There. So there's there's this stuff called hot stuff. There's just all this oh, hot stuff. I think ended up having like uh, Dianabol in it. I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that stuff yeah. really ended up working yeah. pretty good. Yeah, it did work good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, People got yeah. all puffy and jacked right. and yeah. like, man, this shit's crazy. Yeah. Like, yeah, there was a lot of that going on. So uh, there, was a, there was a magazine article that came out, I think it was 89, um, and it talked about a half inch on your arms in one day. So I grabbed like four pounds of bananas and I parked at the gym like at 8 a.m. Same thing. And then left at like <laughs> 8 o'clock that night. And... It took like a year to get my arms back to normal after that. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it just, it just it totally screwed you up. You, so you'd work biceps and triceps. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, like periodically, like the whole day. Yeah. And, and I brought a bunch of food to the gym too. I had <laughs> like bananas and I had hard boiled <laughs> eggs and like, it was like you'd camp out at the right. gym, you know, right. and it was like a 12 hour thing. I mean, yeah, it was, it was absolute insanity. Do you know who else did this one? Uh, Ron, Ron, I'm sure we, I'm sure we yeah. all happen yeah. to do it on the same day, probably. Yeah. You know, yeah, the same month, yeah. So we got to relive that. We got to go down to Ron's gym and that would be uh, fun. all train together and, that and would, put an inch on the arms that, in one day. <laughs> that would, I wouldn't last more than ten minutes, but, um, but so my whole life has been 
listening to stuff like that and then years of problems from listening to something, you know, where someone else made their money and I was just jacked up. So that got me to this place of like, what's really true versus what's not. And so that, that was a big impetus with this. But the other thing too was um, today, what we think of as this whole thing, it's very, it's in a place very similar to 1992 martial arts. So you have these different schools, like, wow. no, dude, karate's the best. No, dude, kung fu shreds. No, dude, like, boxing will kick your ass any day of the week. No, dude, Aikido crushes it. <laughs> okay? That's where we're at today. And it's what, like Hulk Hogan would beat the shit out of all those people. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and what was really true then is they all had one thing in common. None of them were dealing with reality. Not one. And then along comes mixed martial arts. And redefines the map. And sometimes what happens in an endeavor is you get so far away from what's really true that there's this loud snap back to, mm. to truth. And what I just saw was that as a whole, the industry had gotten, has gotten so far from what is actually true. That was the big impetus with this. And, um, and it's and like, you can go down category by category, man. Like, like I have four chapters in here dedicated to body fat because, because the truth of body fat has never been laid out. Never like, like, okay. So, um, you reduced fat cells. So here's what happened. The extracellular matrix is going to upregulate collagen two plus collagen six collagen. Those, uh, it's also going to upregulate matrix melanoprotease 11 and uh, fatty acid binding protein four. Those are going to reprogram fat cells. And what's going to happen is you're going to get all the shearing and traction stress. On, I mean, like nobody's, this has never been okay. Like that's how fat cells really work. And here's the consequences of that. And also, like, what what is the ideal human body fat level? So, uh, and I'm sure, you know, there's some variations uh, with some genetics and things like that, but that has to play in it to, into it too, right? That has to be a big, that's a big, be a big factor. If you're, you know, if you were, I don't know, let's say 18% body fat most, most of your life and you're like, man, I'd love to make some changes. And now you're, you know, living in single digit body fat land. It might be very stressful on your body, right? Uh, very much so. There's there's um, a, a lot of new revelations about what's always been true. Um, for example, this is really interesting. Um, as the body gets super lean, kind of like where you were at for your contest, um, new fat cells start to get formed. And the reason they start to get formed, or excuse me, new lipid droplets start to get formed. The reason they're getting formed is that uh, there are carnitines within the mitochondria that are getting damaged. And these damaged carnitines are, are very destructive to the mitochondria. So what happens is uh, fat, it turns out, is a longevity regulator. And what happens is all this damaged stuff uh, overwhelms the uh, detoxification ability of the cell. So it gets sequestered into body fat, into lipid droplets. And the lipid droplets just kind of act like this um, nuclear containment facility for all the toxic aggregates. And so it kind of like protects the body from it. And so as you're getting super, super lean, it's kind of, it's kind of, your body's kind of saying like, how long are you really going to do this for dude? Right? Yeah. You're getting sort of negative points and then the body has a backup mechanism for that. So there's, there's, uh, I believe that we're walking into a new era where um, we're going to really look at how things actually work and get away from a lot of these narratives. Have you ever had an opportunity to work with a bodybuilder before? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, and then like, how do you? Um, I know that you have worked with me in in my bodybuilding show, uh, but you know, I was uh, I was on a very specific diet and stuff like that, so I didn't want to flirt with that too much. But it, you helped me uh, after the contest 
Um, what about, you know, uh, somebody going into, into a contest, some contest prep, like what are some things that you may have done with a bodybuilder that looks different so that people can kind of avoid what you're just, uh, what you're talking about, or can you not avoid it if you're trying to get super lean? That's not an area that I've ventured into. And I think there's a lot of dudes that do pre-contest prep a hell of a lot better than I would do. Um, it's, it hasn't really been my focus. Um, I do have my areas where like, you know, if I want to get really lean or I want to help somebody get really lean, I'll, I'll do that. Um, I'm, I'm coming at it very differently than a bodybuilder would. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know that I'm qualified to the, uh, the, the intuition that they have on some of it is pretty crazy. Like where, you know, my coach was like, uh, you know, go out tonight and have a, a bacon cheeseburger, <laughs> you know, like the, it was just, he, he would see something in my body where he thought I needed very specific foods. And, I'm finding commonality between, you know, what you're saying and, and what these guys are saying. It was probably exactly just to offset. Like he knows you're in a deficit. Mm -hmm. He knows your body's craving these nutrients and now your body's going to suck a lot of these things up. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, gosh, you could do a show on that. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's there's that. When, so you and I have also discussed, you know, you're mentioning, you know, ice cream and pizza and stuff like this. And you kind of already touched upon it a little bit. But uh, what about somebody just, just you know, you talked about seasonal. What about somebody kind of just taking a diet break? You know, mm -hmm. can they? And what about the influence of some processed foods and stuff? We know that this is going to exist in the diet anyway because it's uncontrollable. They're they're too delicious. The things taste too good. Mm -hmm. But does this make sense uh, from a health perspective? Does this make sense for people to just say, you know what, for the next you know two three weeks, I'm just gonna. I'm just going to relax on the diet a little bit and mm -hmm. I'm going to, there's, you know, I, I think you need some rules for yourself. Right. You know, you want to be careful, especially right. if you're heavy, right. but do you think this is a good idea? Yeah. Uh, this is some interesting new research starting in 2014 on uh, the benefits of sort of the other side of dieting, um, metabolically speaking. So um, there's even very specific proteins that are starting to kind of be identified, um, circulating catabolic factor or other different types of proteins that are induced by overfeeding or just sort of, you know, kind of like changes in food patterns and the net of these things. So you're changing things up. You're, you're going on this thing that sort of at the outset seems like, wow, why would you do that, dude? You're going to get fat. <laughs> but the net result is you're actually upregulating key proteins and other things in the body that actually help you stay leaner. So um, there's a lot of benefit to that. Mm. Can be. Yeah. Can be. Um, we have a, a rap sheet here and the... The guy that made it said that he, you eat primarily fast food. Is oh, that, is that legit? It's a hundred percent true, but it's not junk food. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I actually, there's, there's this funny uh, thing with people that know me uh, of making fun of me. Like when we go out, cause I will, I'll eat, you know, I'll, I'll if I want to celebrate, I will. Yeah. I actually eat very healthy. I actually eat really healthy. It's just that, um, I, number one, I don't do any meal prep. Mm -hmm. um, I do everything on the go with healthy sort of fast food for the most part. Not so when you say healthy, well, like what does it entail? Like when you go to a certain place, what mm -hmm. are the things that you get? What are the things that you avoid? Um, I, I, I won't avoid anything if I want it. Okay. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. For but sure. what I do a lot of is, um, I eat for function on the go okay. and it's, so here's the crazy, crazy part. In fact, when we get done, I'll, I'll, I'll put you guys on it just for fun. Nice. It's actually healthier than just about anything you can do because what we're doing is we're, you can get so isolated on like, uh, you know, the, the, the minutia of like the food, like 
Yeah, but but was that chicken raised on like Brazilian grass? Okay, <laughs> was he eating like was he eating like an, the ancestral mouse? Yeah, how was he taken care of? Okay, yeah. you can get so obsessed on that that you're actually getting away from some of the mechanistic aspects of food. So um, so what? Well, I have like um sort of a list of of um places that are you know on very specific days, very specific times. Um, I'll go to and I can do uh, a, a meal specifically to spin up the phytobacteria. And then maybe the next day I can eat very specific types of fats just on the go without even having to, to do anything. And because all these things fit into an sort of a connected pattern of like I'm spinning the phytobacteria up here, I'm inducing autophagy here, um, it's actually healthier. Like, as crazy as it sounds, no meal mm-hmm. prep and it's actually healthier. And a lot of people think that's BS, but I didn't do that to be sensationalist. It just came out of necessity. I I had this period in the mid-2000s where I was running this um, company and we grew up to a multi-million dollar company. And um, I went from being 5% body fat at the start of that job to 260 pounds of <laughs> fat, okay? I mean, I was like, our revenue curve and my weight were identical. Like, <laughs> identical. And... Uh, it really, really bothered me because I had 30 years of fitness in at that point, and I just found for me that uh, all that collapsed when I put the ecosystem of the real world on it. I was turning 40, I was working 14-hour days. Uh, yeah, I remember you telling me this story too. <laughs> you, you, this is how you kind of landed on all this stuff is yeah. that you used to spend uh, basically your whole early lifetime like training yeah. and eat, you know, eating correctly or correctly as you thought at the time. Yeah. And then once that was kind of taken away from you, you didn't have that much time to put into it. Boom. You gained a bunch of weight. Yeah. What I found out, I found out something the hard way. Um, and it's, it's, a uh, it's something that's never really talked about. And I, and I think, um, you know, for people that are sort of in the business of helping other people, I think a, a really important shift needs to happen, which is to understand that there's an ecosystem difference and that ecosystem difference creates probabilities that are very different in both ecosystems. And so we want to have solutions for any ecosystem. And mm. if you have a solution, it has to be designed for that ecosystem yeah. that, that, that you know, your client is in, for example. Just for example, somebody has a nine to five and yeah. they, they are at their desk all the time. Right. Maybe they can't do right. you know, uh, the 150 different exercises you want them to do every single day. Yeah, and so I, I, for me, had to create something that that worked in that ecosystem. And what I found over time was that most of the advice coming out of the fitness ecosystem just didn't translate, and it didn't translate due to willpower or time management. It was probability. It was the probability of where your minutes go. And I just needed that for me in that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that turned into this thing where, like, I realized what most people were doing over time was they would try and adopt the fitness ecosystem and then they'd fail due to time probability constraints over time. And so hacking that problem became kind of like the thing I got obsessed with. Was walk us walk us through this. You go to McDonald's in the morning. No. And then for lunch, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I never do that. You go to Chipotle and No, yeah. I would never go to McDonald's. You're talking about these fast foods. So like yeah. what 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 does it look like? What exactly are these foods that we're talking about? Oh, so you mentioned Chipotle. I'll I'll, I'll do that one. That's a, that's a good, that's kind of like a You still kind of avoid like McDonald's, Burger King, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I I eat I eat healthy right, almost right. all the time. The only difference in me is like I don't hold back from celebrating if I want to, but I just offset it after I do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in fact, if you compare me to the average person, they're doing the same thing. They're just not offsetting it, 
Right. That's all. They're they're like convincing themselves they're strict, but then what they're doing is partying on the weekends, and then they don't know how to offset it. And there's some people that are trying to offset it, but also in a very unhealthy fashion because they're like, "All right, I'm going 45 minutes on the elliptical. I'm going hard. Right. On Mon- I'm starting right. back on Monday, right. getting everything back on track, and then they kind of continue to do that. And unfortunately. it's that, that back on track thing is what most people are stuck in. Um, and I just think I figured out a better way, which is that um, if you look at how the body really works. Um, multiple times a day, you're burning fat, storing fat, burning fat, storing fat, burning fat, storing fat. So if you could take the periods where you're burning fat and make the curve bigger and the periods where you're storing fat and shrink it, mm. okay, um, then you are going to increase your probability of getting what you want. It's not a panacea. You're, st- you're going to always have seasons where you got to kind of get back into it, put a little more time into it. It's never going to go away. But what you can get rid of is over time, what you're seeing is this. Maybe it'd be more beneficial to not even think about being on a track. You know, like people say they got off track. Maybe it'd be more beneficial to just say like, this is, I'm going to implement and employ uh, what I can, what I can stick to for a lifetime. Uh, yeah. It's, so, um, I, uh, I, a plug. I, uh, <laughs> I just came out with this uh, course called um, How to Eat. And it's all this, it's all the stuff in the book, but it's just more of it. Um but so let's take Chipotle for example. Your website had a lot of great stuff on it too, and, and you were sharing that with me when I was. Uh, it, it had like the meal plans and everything mm. for you. Yeah, all that stuff. Um, so like, uh, what I would do with Chipotle is, um, I would do that the day before fast. And what you want to do is, you want to get uh, black beans, double portion, no rice. Put them in a separate bowl. Okay. Then in a separate bowl from the black beans, you want to put in. Uh, double chicken, a uh, double scoop of, of hot peppers, and then a bunch of hot stuff. So like the the, the grades <clears throat> of salsa, put that in there. A little bit of cheese. The cheese is going to help fat oxidation. Um, then what you do is you go over to the ice machine. You dump ice in the beans. Okay. And then you stir it up. Ice? Resi- turning, in, turning it into a resistant starch. Yes. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what you're doing is um, you're, you're taking, you're not feeding you, you're feeding bifidobacteria. So you're taking, you're taking the black beans and you're turning them from a substrate that feeds you to something that feeds bifidobacteria. So then you just drain out all the water, dump, dump the beans in the, the other bowl. Could you picture seeing him at, <laughs> you yeah. doing this in Chipotle? Like you're trying to get, you're trying to get soda and yeah. he's like buttoning yeah. in yeah. to, to get his ice uh, on the beans. Yeah. No, it's, it's a convo piece. Like I'll be in, I'll be in Chipotle doing this and people are just like kind of doing this, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're like huh like what, what is this yeah uh and then you take some hot sauce and put that on there and wow like you're gonna feel that all afternoon all afternoon so it's a gut bomb and everything in that uh burns fat and makes bifidobacteria <laughs> and so here's the thing <laughs> where people get derailed is is like <laughs> chipotle got caught with like their hands in their pants and you know right, like right, that's right. not <laughs> triple organic uh, desaturated with like moon dust and pick these you know you get into that whole thing i love that voice i love that (laughs) so you get into that whole thing and um but what we're leaving out of the equation is foundationally speaking you have to come back to order of operations and so keeping bifidobacteria spun up does all these other things long list of things that it does and so, you know, the trade-offs in terms of like, you know, grades of like chicken meat and, you know, all this stuff is offset by the fact that mechanistically you're timing production of bacteria to the genetic rush hour. So there's a functional tool there, okay? I can do that on the go. And there's several other things like that that I've just, you know, developed that um, 
eliminate meal prepping and all that stuff. And it's actually healthier. Wow. It's healthier. Are, are you concerned at all? Because you said extra peppers, right? Mm-hmm. So I, because I looked into it too, but I guess they, they cook, they um, saute it in rice bran oil. Yeah. I don't know, is that concerning at all? So there's always pros and cons. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's, everything is a series of like pros and cons. Uh, there's, there's like the, there's the, the benefits and then there's the negatives. Like, um, sh- like with sugar, like sugar is not all negative, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, there's, there's, uh, so I talk about this in the book. Um, I call it baby talk. Okay. The, the, the baby talk is the what without the when and the how. And the exa- the analogy is words. Like if you're a baby and you go cookie, you might get a cookie. Okay. <laughs> but if you want to get elected president or you want to win the heart of that special person or get a job, learning to use the right words in the right time in the right way has a power nothing else has food works exactly like that so once you get how to use the right foods in the right time in the right way it's a power and and it's true of anything in health anything so where where the industry's at right now 100% is you know just to do the voice plants are bad <laughs> Meat, meat is good. <laughs> Fiber is bad. Is there two marks in here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you're in this, you're in this like 1990 martial arts, good, bad sort of thing. That's not how things work. The reality is anything can be good or bad. Um, it depends on what's, what's the objective and then when and how. Timing and how it's used. And once you get that, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. So the negative is, you know, they, they cook it in these types of fat, that, that, that. But then mm-hmm. the other side of it is, mm, yeah, but you're going to be spinning up um, key. You're giving key bacteria the right substrate at the right time, in the right way, when you most need it, which is at four in the morning when HDAC and all these other things are going off. So, you know, where's the way off there? Mm-hmm. Do you think a lot of the science that you've learned, a lot of the things you learned over the years, do you think that it's possible that maybe some of it uh, might be incorrect uh, in association back to uh, depending on like what style of diet someone's uh, following. So let's say, let's say for example, that we just say uh, meat can be uh, carcinogenic, right? Let's just say we say something along those lines. Would that be true uh, if somebody was to predominantly only eat meat? Like do the rules start to change Mm -hmm. when we, you know, don't have so many dietary options? Uh, that's a fantastically great question. Um, so the history of science is the history of being completely wrong while we were sure we were right. The Earth's flat. Yeah, that's the history of science. It, it, in fact, uh, it, it's it just happened with cholesterol. You know, in the last year or two, it's yeah. like ah, we were wrong. It's not HD. It's not ah, we were wrong. Uh. So I always just try to come back to a place of a um, empiricism is extremely important, but you have to. Also look at, does it make sense? Does it kind of fit a loose ancestral narrative? And then observationally, have I seen this work on a lot of people? And then, and then even then, you, you need a little bit of balance in there. And so that's why I keep coming back to that idea of balance that, you know, um, in the right time, the right way, just about anything is on the table. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. And I think that's reasonable. I think... You know, while I enjoy a keto diet and I enjoy uh, the diet that I'm on now, a carnivore style diet, 
I'm also like, I also am a firm believer in, in eating the things that, you know, the natural foods that were, you know, put on this earth for us to eat, which I think would include vegetables. I talk about it all the time here on the show. I, I don't have any problem against vegetables. Uh, this is a little bit more of an experiment for this month to kind of go this deep into it. I also think that fruits can be great. I also think that uh, potatoes and rice, and I think there's a place uh, for a lot of these different things uh, in my diet. I don't know when I'll go back to uh, mixing those things in. But if somebody wanted to be on a carnivorous-style diet, they wanted to follow that, What what is something they should really really be aware of? What's something that maybe uh, you know people are just kind of diving into it because they're like, oh, Mark, you got lean, so I'm going to kind of do it with you. What, what's... Uh, something that maybe people should um, should know ahead of time. You know, is it going to be important to spin back out of this? Is it going to be important to add in fiber while you're doing the diet? What are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, kind of high level. I, I think um, I, I always like to tie things to sort of a functional outcome. And I think that um, there can be a lot of positives to that in terms of actually bringing inflammation down. So that could be a goal I'm going after or adding muscle. That could be a goal I'm going after. Um, so I, I, number one, would put it to a functional outcome. Like, like So what I'm going to do is I have a period here where I'm going to leverage the power of meat to put some muscle on for a while. And that's a, it's a really useful thing. Or, or um, I, I need to spin inflammation down. So I'm going to combine fasting with sort of a period of having a lot of meat and it's going to help with that. Um, I'm going to add this little thing here, maybe these specific fibers to sort of offset maybe the potential oncogenic, you know, aspects of meat fermenting in the gut. Um, generally I'm of the opinion that in the short term, nothing's really that big a deal. Like and short with, term being even trying it for a year or two or, or I, I think, shorter period of time. I generally, for me, probably about six months is kind of Got my, it. my idea of the Got short it. term. Um, and I think a lot of things, uh, keto diet can be very beneficial in those, in those time frames. Um, the other thing that I would throw out with that is um, stop, do not pass go until you understand how body fat really works when you reduce it. Because that is that is the number one thing. <clears throat> what happens is when you're in your 20s, I have a quote in my book from Joe Rogan where he talks about uh, a weight cut. And he, and he said, he observed that it just seems like after a while, the body develops a resistance. Mm. And he hit it right in the head. So we just think that losing fat is just this thing and you can do it anytime you want. But actually when you look at what's actually really true about how fat works, um, over time it, your body builds a resistance to fat loss. And, it's, and it makes sense if you think about just from a starvation perspective. Mm -hmm. We call it fat loss, but historically it's called starvation. Mm -hmm. So the more you starve, the body gets better at, at, at holding on to fat. So I think you have to understand how body fat actually works and how to counter all the, the mechanistic adaptions to it. I think that's a, a really big thing. And I, my own personal experience... <clears throat> Um, you know, I've been in the weight loss universe. What I see a lot of are people who are in their forties and fifties and they did it all. Like they did the body for life. They did, you know, um, what Atkins, they did everything. And now they can't lose weight because of just all the, everything that they've done up until that point mm -hmm. has made them so resistant to that. Yeah. They have a very hard time losing weight. And in the book, I explain the mechanism behind that. So what happens is body fat is not fat. Body fat is a system. When I say system, what I mean is that you have a number of components. So you have fat cells, but then you have immune cells, a number of immune cells, a lot. Then you have uh, stem cells. Then you have the extracellular matrix. Then you have very specific collagens. And then you have very specific proteins. And then you have microRNAs, okay? All these things work together 
as a system. That system has multiple configurations. Okay. Mm-hmm. One in particular I talk about in the book is uh, the secretory associated uh, phenotype. This is a mode that your fat can go into where it's essentially acting like a megaphone putting out senescent inflammatory signals across the body. Okay. So you have to understand how your fat works. And once you understand how your fat works and how that system works, now it becomes about keeping that system optimized. And you have to understand the mechanisms and the levers of your fat. So when you lose fat, you are, you are creating an injury. We don't think of it as an injury, but to understand it at the cellular level, if I, if your liver got kicked out of place, okay, that's an injury. Okay. Um, in fat cells, when fat cells shrink, <clears throat> they're, they're tied to the extracellular matrix. When the fat cell shrinks, it breaks away from the extracellular matrix. Okay. So, so what happens is mechanobiology, shearing stress happens where <clears throat> if that was a house and this was a brick and this was the mortar and the brick shrunk from the mortar, all the way to the house would transfer from both to just the mortar. Okay. House might collapse. Same thing happens when you drop fat. So you create a mechanobiology effect where shearing stress transfers from the structure to a whole to just the ECM. Mm-hmm. So that's an injury. <clears throat> and then to fix that injury, what happens is very specific fibers grab the fat cell and pull it back in position. Well, that creates traction stress. It'd be like if I pulled my whole body mm-hmm. from right here, or if I pulled your house from one cable, I might get your house where I want, but I'm going to injure the house. Okay, so in response to that, fat cells make heat shock proteins to sort of fix the damage. And you have all these injury related processes that kick in. Uh, You have shifts in immune cells, shifts in collagen fibers, all these things that happen. And long term, the emerging view is that fibrosis or stiffening of the ECM is not just an obesity problem. It may just be the way fat operates. And so we are coming into a profound shift of this whole picture and understanding that repeatedly reducing body fat may be one of the biggest drivers of the problem long-term. Wow. So people need to just, you know, I guess uh, to kind of sum some of that up, people just need to, if they, let's say someone weighs 300 pounds, they're listening to this right now and they're like, fuck man, I don't have any hope because, you know, (laughs) he's telling me not to lose weight, but you're not saying not to lose weight, but it might be really smart to try to do it in stages, right? It might be smart to, you know, say, hey, like for this month, I'm going to focus in on uh, on dropping weight. Next month, I want to focus in a little bit more on just feeling really good. I'm not all that concerned if I, if I lose that much weight. Is, was that kind of, you know, would, some, would a concept like that uh, be something that would make sense? Uh, I, I would probably add on to that and say um, you've got to become aware of a new way of thinking about this problem. And there are checkpoints you need along the way. Uh, so let's take some of the things that you did. Um, one of those is a leptin checkpoint. So as fat cells shrink, uh, serum leptin um, goes down, and that's setting you up to eat more long-term. So as fat's coming down, we need these checkpoints that kick leptin up. Okay. So by the time you get to the bottom, instead of leptin being here, it's up here. We've created the opposite effect. Okay. So we've hacked that one aspect. Okay. The next aspect is the, uh, the gut biome completely shifts when you drop fat. And in most cases, you're left with actually a weight gain sort of enterotype or gut bacteria. We've got to fix that problem. I think we did that one with you too as mm-hmm. well. Um, and so you've got just all these checkpoints that are not even in the discussion right now. 
and that, that really like and it's kind of it's why I put so much four chapters in here. It's the hardest part of the book. Um, to that, because this, in my opinion, long term is really messing people up. And once you get the checkpoints, it's not that hard. Like the things we did with you weren't that hard. It was like, okay, dude, here, eat this, here, eat that, and make sure it's at this time and make sure it's gigantic, you know? And that has a big, big impact. Yeah, you had very, very specific foods. And I think it would be really cool. Um, we're going to try not to take up too much more of your time, but this is just so fascinating. And it's such an honor to have someone here. Uh, who speaks so well, you know, about nutrition. Let's play a little game here and let's, uh, <laughs> let's throw some food uh, right. towards Joel All right. here. All right. And uh, he can give us uh, scenarios of like what the food can do for us from a beneficial standpoint, or you could shout out, you know, Hey, tacos or something and, and see what, uh, how he would spin away from, okay. you know, eating a, you know, quote unquote bad food. All right. So I'll kind of start it out and, um, I'll uh, I'll kick her off with uh, cucumbers. What are something that cucumbers could do for us? Cucumbers mm-hmm. are really good to start um, to start a, a period of fat loss. So if you combine cucumbers with avocado and asparagus right at the very beginning, um, you're going to get a lot of things that are extremely beneficial. Um, mechanistically, avocado is going to actually suppress insulin um, output. There's a special sugar called mannoheptulose in avocado. And what I've seen is when you combine that with cucumber, um, it, it's incredible what it does for fat loss at the very start. So it's kind of a, a natural cleanse. I think you mentioned uh, having that even before you have like a meal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very useful at the very start of a fat loss program. Um, and and I think also too, last time you were here, you mentioned that uh, cucumbers could potentially help uh, against uh, being like hungover or something like that, right? Was that what it's? I can't uh, that, remember if that's that, what it was. That was asparagus. Asparagus. Asparagus, mm. yeah. I'll go ahead and might, might as well roll, roll yeah. into that roll one that. now. Asparagus is kind of like a Swiss army knife of foods. I mean, it's it's highly, highly utilitarian. Um, one of the interesting things about asparagus is that it actually helps upregulate a couple enzymes involved in alcohol metabolism. So asparagus is a really good food to eat around the consumption of alcohol and you know, like none of these things are a panacea. It's not like you're going to eat asparagus and you're good. It's not like <laughs> that at all. It's you're going to get a couple percent improvement. Right. But if you learn about six, seven, eight of these things, they're super easy to do. You just add like, you know, these things in there. So uh, asparagus is also a fantastic tool to offset with. Um, one of the things that I do a lot is like if I go off the reservation, we go to Cheesecake Factory and I really shouldn't have eaten that, but I did. Mm-hmm. Um, asparagus at bedtime um sort of helps check the destruction a little bit because obesity from a gut biome perspective is a fermentation issue. You're fermenting the wrong foods meal to meal to meal. You can take that same concept and apply it in the reverse and you can even use it to offset foods. So you can, you can ferment in a positive direction, ferment in a negative direction, then ferment in a positive direction, meal to meal sequencing. So uh, asparagus at bedtime after you've really blown it is fantastic for that. What about celery? That got popular uh, not too long ago. I have no use for celery for the most part. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, there, there are some functional aspects to it. It just hasn't been like one of my things that, mm-hmm. I, that I use too much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because celery, one of the things about it is it makes you really hungry. Um, and there's, there's times when being hungry is good, but mm-hmm. there's better tools to, to induce hunger. Got it. And what, then, what's a better tool to induce hunger? Because some people want to gain some size around here too. <laughs> yeah, uh, so combination at night. Uh, well, I wouldn't do it at night. It'll keep you up. But um, lunchtime, lunchtime, do a combination of um, raw broccoli with avocado, 
with black beans and tuna. Do those wow. four together. That's going to be a fart bomb right yeah. there. Yeah. I was say. You said raw coffee? No, no, Rob Rob Broccoli. Oh, Rob Broccoli. Yeah, Rob Broccoli with nice try though. Let me let me go. Wait, let me go through this again. Okay, Rob Broccoli, avocado, a little bit of avocado, uh, some some black beans, not heated, and then some tuna steak, like lightly braised, and you'll be absolutely starving. (laughs) Are black beans just you know that you get in a can from a store? Those are a resistant starch, just uh, by the way they are. As long as they're cold. Yeah. As long as they're cold. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, On the live stream, Arabah asks, "What about lemons?" Uh, lemons are, are are kind of a great little add-on to like uh, a, a whole food cleanse. You know, they're mm. they're good for that. Um, I haven't used them too much myself for anything other than that. Or uh, lemons with um, citrus make for a really good like kind of natural salad dressing. When you're there, there's a couple of there's a couple of like mega fat loss like meal combinations that I've done with people, and you just you need some flavor somewhere in there, and lemons are really good for that. If you have too much flavor deprivation while you're in, experiencing fat loss, your mind goes, you, you, you upregulate <laughs> the archaic nucleus in the brain, and then you just eat like crazy. So, uh, do uh, lemons help? Um, do lemons help you digest collagen a little bit better? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, one. I've heard somebody say that maybe vitamin C might play into it. So, some people talked about squeezing a little bit of lemon in some bone broth. But that's interesting. What about uh, something like cereal? Thank you. That w- I was just that is yeah. That's why I asked it because I'm always thinking number when I think of you. I think of me. cereal. Which yeah. one? <laughs> uh, well, I love cereal for sure. Uh, like I guess I can't really do a top three, but the, the top three that come to my my head is uh, cocoa pebbles for sure. Yes. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Cin- right. Cinnamon toast crunch. Yes. My there favorite. You go. There you I go. I keep asking Ron. That's I got to ask good. Ron to do that one. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, it's a tie between legit just regular Cheerios mm. and back to fruity pebbles. Hmm. Hmm. Um, the, the place I would use those, um, there are times when there are times when you need to two X calories and it's, it's, it's actually very good to do. Um, so again, one of the ways you can maximize muscle growth is to amplify starvation signals. So the more you get the body signaling starvation, the more it's going to put muscle on. And it just makes sense if you think about it. Like if you just run through that narrative, it kind of makes sense. And then in a practical sense, um, it actually works. So, Coming off, uh, coming off a very specific kind of fast where you've been amplifying the signals of starvation. In fact, you can even do it with food. You need two X calories for about ten days, and it's very difficult uh, to two X calories <laughs> sometimes. And so that's those things can be kind of perfect in in that space. They can be really useful in that space to do that, and and it's very beneficial because you have to combine it with uh, training a lot heavier, two Xing calories, and a mm. few other things. But during that period, um, th- th- fruity pebbles are very useful. So yeah, this they're, this they're clumps together with like ice cream and stuff too. Like that okay, that's yeah. where all that type of stuff clumps together. Correct. Not necessarily. Um, so sometimes you just you just go off the reservation. Yeah. Sometimes you just do, and there's there's just no rhyme or reason to it. And that is uh, a section of the book I talk about uh, the new science of meal sequencing, and it's it's actually a pretty fascinating topic. It's it's basically like once you understand how meals are working, um, I give I give a very easy way to to understand it. It's if you've eaten a big meal. Um, you're just much less likely to have dessert. And the reason is the previous meal has dictated what you're going to eat and you're just not going to eat dessert versus if you ate, um, you know, like cucumbers and avocado for one meal, the next meal, you're much more likely to 
uh, not just eat more, but eat things that have a ton of flavor. Okay. Mm. So, and that's exactly how obesity works again. So another aspect to obesity is the signaling meal to meal is creating this snowball where it's making you meal to meal want more things that are worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. You can take that and you can make that work in reverse. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways you do that is by understanding how meals sequence together. And it's this idea that here's your pizza and ice cream meal. Okay. And then there's a meal before that, that is doing a bunch of very specific things like setting offsetting the damage to the gut bacteria, a bunch of other things. And then the post meal is also offsetting a lot of that damage. So, and then you can go down the list. It's like, okay, well, gut bacteria, we have to fix this. Check um, insulin function, we have to fix this. Check, check, check. And so you can use meal-to-meal sequencing to increase insulin, insulin sensitivity, increase or decrease energy harvest from food. So decrease the calories yielded from food and all mm-hmm. these other things that are all part of the new science of, of meal sequencing. Do you think that, because we, we've talked a little bit about this before, there's some people that they can have a little bit of these foods and have great self-control. And there's some people that if they do have a little bit of these foods, mm-hmm. they go off the reservation, mm-hmm. which is why they just choose to abstain. Mm-hmm. But your idea of balance is if you want it, have it, know how to deal with it. So can this kind of, I guess, help those individuals that feel that they have to abstain get control of that? Is there a way for them or is that just a personality type of idea? Um, I, I would say that it's not a perfect answer, but to give you the general parameters of it, there are mechanisms that are within your control meal to meal. Mm-hmm. Um, again, coming back to the gut bacteria. So if I have the pizza and ice cream meal, what that's going to do is the way obesity works is it's going to ferment bacteria in my gut that are going to make me want more pizza and ice cream. Okay. Mm-hmm. So one technique is prior to that meal, I can push the gut the opposite direction, okay? And then after that meal, I can push the gut the opposite direction again. What that does is it's going to blunt uh, some of that, not all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, there's no panaceas. There's just, there's 10 improvements of 5%. That's what there are. And each one of these will give you 5%. So it's going to blunt some of that. The next problem you have is the effect on insulin function and the effect of energy dense food on the body's controls over satiety and all those types of things. Yeah. You can hack that through timing. So there's certain times where you can insert those things and the effect can be blunted. So makes a lot of sense. And how would the timing uh, work? Just a, a certain amount of time, you know, beforehand you would eat something like mm-hmm. you mentioned to me, uh, positive effects of having, I think it was whey protein shake, and some olive mm-hmm. oil about mm-hmm. 30 minutes before a meal. Yeah, that's that's one way to do it. And people think this is hooey. Like when I'm talking about this, like, dude, you're so full of crap. You know? Because <laughs> they haven't really heard it. Olive oil. They just, they just really haven't, yeah. they haven't, they haven't really heard it before. That's, mm-hmm. that's yeah. part of the reason why. Yeah. 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 I get it. Some of the, some of the, like, some of the, like, shade thrown last time was like, like, yeah, you're full yeah. But um, <laughs> they certainly just never heard it, you know, because mm-hmm. really, like, people are listening to people that are, you know, trying to get bigger for like bodybuilding or powerlifting. And, mm-hmm. you know, you hear a little bit of talk about uh, performance, but you don't really hear about functional food, not for function of like, you know, 
how your body like lifts in the gym and stuff like that, which I know that this would still have a huge benefit on that. But this is to improve the the function of the way that you're digesting and the way that you're consuming and the way that you're absorbing the very food that you're eating. Yeah. And I, I don't, we've just have never, we've never had anybody else on this podcast before talk about any of this before. So this is very new to a lot of people. That's why a lot of people might be like, oh my God, this is such bullshit. Yeah. I yeah. hope they're not believing this guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope no, Smelly I doesn't eat a garbanzo yeah. bean. Yeah. No, I, I, I get it. I get it. Uh, <laughs> so the answer to your question is circuseptin rhythm um, for, for that piece of it. Um, so if you look at uh, Mondays, <laughs> sorry, what? A garbanzo beans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he told me he garbanzo beans, I think. I can't remember. Yeah, no, yeah. They're very functional. They're, they're... So, one of the things you can do with garbanzo beans. <laughs> let's go. Yeah, let's yeah, go. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, garbanzo beans are actually um, they're a super fantastic tool. Number one, um, if you're a vegan, they're like your go to for protein source. I mean, like a lot of people don't know this, but like 45 grams of protein in a, in a cup of garbanzo Damn. beans. I mean, they're, they're shit. Yeah, there's a ton of protein in garbanzos. Yeah. But the next thing is they have very unique oligosaccharides in them, and they sensitize insulin. So if you know you're going to have the pizza and ice cream meal, garbanzo beans uh, at the previous meal actually help insulin work a little bit better. You're going to get a two, you know, a couple percent bump on the way insulin works. So they're very, 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 very functional, and they feed the gut. Um, so Cool. Yeah. How about a question that a lot of people probably have? Um, before working out, I think you do some super specific things, but how can they, what should, or yeah, what kind of things should they potentially eat before having a workout or yeah, before a workout to make them perform better? Um, it depends on the time and the type of workout and all yeah. these different types of things, but let's, let's just go down the list. Um, so go to, which I don't think is new to probably most people in this audience is that workout on the morning of a fast. Okay. Let, let's start with that one because that's kind of the most important. Mm -hmm. um, what I would add to that discussion is that you have amplified bacteria prior to that and you've amplified the genetic rush hour prior to that. So you're getting all this sort of signal induction for AMPK, CERT1 and all these things we want to activate. Then coming into that workout, uh, a few things just really stand out above others, which are um, if you want to train fasted, then coming into that... Uh, Small molecules can be fantastic. So berberine, for example, coming into that. And very specific types of fats can change things quite a bit. So um, what, would, what would berberine do? Berberine is um, going to help activate the AMPK pathway. Okay, It's going to activate the, the youth-extending, life-extending benefits of sort of that fasted workout. Your, your ancestral narrative is freezing your ass off in the morning, hunting food, sprinting, and carrying something heavy. Okay. So starve state, freezing, um, uh, deadlifting, essentially, and spraying. Those, those are, that's kind of like, that rings the... the deadlifting in the snow. Yeah, yes, yeah, which eliminates 99% of the population. <laughs> we invented society to not deadlift in the snow. Uh, but so coming into that workout there, so sprints and deadlifts are like uh, hugely beneficial, uh, give a lot of reward points for keeping everything young. In cycles, like you don't, want to do that all the time. Mm. Sometimes it's, sometimes you, you need to cycle coming into a fast, um, fasted, but then other times giant meals are extremely useful, particularly, particularly post-workout coming out of a fast or mm -hmm. even going into after a fast. And you're just going to get a completely different type of workout. So you can do the same type of workout coming off a fast with either fasted or giant meals, and you're going to get different outcomes. Sometimes you need massive inputs of food to spin inflammation down. And I think that's a mistake. I know I made that mistake. I was uh, 
in the early phases, you know, 2011, 10. I was fasting all the time. I was always sore. And it, was only, it wasn't only until I added big meals in that I started getting resolution of inflammation down. What are your thoughts on feasting? Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, really, you know, getting after it and, and packing in a lot of food. Is that, when people do eat, is that uh, a smart thing to do? You know, are there some benefits to it? I mean, you're mentioning yeah. some of them. Yeah, I think it's essential. I think I think feasting is essential for weight maintenance long term. I think you have to long term have periods where you're feasting, and they are best accompanied. In fact, I have it in the book. Like really, kind of fill yourself until you're kind of uncomfortable type thing. Coming off of starvation, so what you want to do right. is amplify starvation signals and then come into feasting, and then the body puts muscle on like crazy. And putting muscle on uh, is very very important for longevity. Hugely important. I think, yeah, don't you end up doing that like you yourself? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, like, I, yesterday I had, I had uh, chicken, steak, pork, eggs, and bacon, like just like, you know, enormous amounts of it. It was so good. This is an often, and this definitely breaks the rules of World Carnivore Month, even though I'm not, I'm not doing that necessarily, but I went to five guys and I got two four by fours. Um, oh, that damn. amazing. Yeah. I had some fries with that. I had a ribeye at home. And I had some, I didn't get to eat the Cold Stone because I wasn't hungry enough. So that's, I'm saving that for later on. Oh. Tomorrow, I mean, later Birthday tonight. cake? Mm. I don't know, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, so, like, that's not something I do very often, but there are, like, days that I, like, I'll eat way more. I just feel that I have to eat so much more food just because, like, it'll help me feel better than How long day. does it take you to eat that amount? Like, do, do you sometimes, like, I sometimes will eat for, like, two hours straight almost. It took me, like, 80 <laughs> minutes yesterday. Yeah. But I bet you recover much better. Oh yeah, like inflammation I feel great. goes. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> I feel great yeah. today. Yeah. You can kind of yeah. like you kind of feel it when you're eating. Yeah. You're yeah. like, I I definitely need more food, right? Like yes, it's, it's in your head, and it's and you're still not feeling like you know uncomfortable. And then once you get that uncomfortable feeling, you're like, ah, I think I I think I got it. I yeah, think I did good enough. Exactly. But in the past, that uncomfortable feeling, I'll just eat through it. Yeah, <laughs> I can't eat through yeah. it now. <laughs> That's outstanding. Yeah, got to have that mindset. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with like uh, these carb partitioners or like these, uh, is this something that you can take before a big meal and it will mm-hmm. supposedly push like the bad carbs like directly into your muscles? Yeah, like, or... like berberine does mm-hmm. that to some extent helps. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Glucose mm-hmm. disposal and all that. Yeah. yeah, there you go. That's yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, I mean, that's a, I would say that um, it's a small piece of the equation, but there are some very good tools. Uh, again, it's all what, when and how. So berberine is like the big gun the big bullet in the gun and you don't want to use it that often. Like you want to mm. save that one for like, like you really messed up, like you need some help. But uh, the other, some of the, some of the lesser ones like gophalopoic acid or, you know, some mm-hmm. of those things are, are very good little additives. Uh, but I would combine them with meal sequencing and it also combine them with just understanding the different mechanisms. So the gut biome, insulin sensitivity, all these other things, combine it with that. And I think that's the misnomer of, the environment we're in right now is like everybody's looking for the what like, like oh you know it's beetroot dude beetroot saves all you know it's, <laughs> no man it's nad dude nad like it just take it's amazing and that's just not the truth this is like nothing works that way it's so what you can do though is is there are very useful tools and once you understand what when and how you can use those tools to get measurable effects mm-hmm. measurable effects and then you know, like i'm 55 I don't, I'm not on anything, you know, um, I eat pretty much whatever I want. I don't work out that much. And I managed to stay fairly lean year round. Um, and it's because I'm getting these little bumps in mm-hmm. things. I'm not getting a hundred percent, but what I am getting is this, this thing that happens over time for most people. I'm pushing this down and I'm pushing the slant down. 
Now that doesn't mean that every now and then I still have to, you know, kind of have a few months where I spin things up and push this here. But what I'm not getting is this thing that happens to the populace mm -hmm. over time. You know? Yeah. And then are you able to like chase down a bad meal or do you have to do everything pre bad meal? No, it's before and after. Got it. So yeah, it's, mm -hmm. you're coming into the meal. You can, you can set it up on a, there's a checkbox. You can just set the checkboxes up and then after the meal, you can do the same thing, you know? And above that pattern in the book, I have what's what I call the two day core pattern. Uh, that inherently offsets just about everything, just just by the nature of what it is. So you're cycling one day to the next, and there's a bunch of mechanisms all interlocking that just, you know. So if I did one unit of it, like morning and then lunch and then dinner was, you know, you know, cheesecake and strawberry, or cheesecake and you know, soda, whatever. Then the next day will offset a, a chunk of that. Got it. Awesome, man. This yeah. is uh, a lot of great, a lot of amazing information. What you got? I, I don't want it to end. There's one last thing I wanted to ask. <laughs> I know I want um, to keep, keep me here for four hours. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. No, you, going. you mentioned something about the industry focusing a lot on like mitochondrial efficiency and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. And there's like, I have a red light machine at home and mm -hmm. I use that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's beneficial or no? Or mm -hmm. is it because you said there are some risks and that piqued my ears a little bit. So mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on that stuff? Fits into the, again, so the, the, the good, bad paradigm is, you know, red light's good, blue light's bad, you know, yeah, yeah. plants are good, meat's bad, blah, blah, blah. Um, red light is extremely beneficial uh, in the context of what, when, and how. Mm -hmm. So by itself, it's not a panacea. You will talk to people who do red light therapy, then they just swear by it. It's like the greatest thing ever. Mm -hmm. um, so by itself, it, it is incrementally utilitarian. And if you combine it in the right time in the right way, example would be you amplify fasted signals the day before. You're taking some small molecule activators at night to amplify signal pathways for AMP-K, all that stuff. And then you're coming into your fast the next day. Red light on top of that, now you're really talking. I mean, that's fantastic. So yeah, it could be very, very, very useful. I think. How, what What would it do? Like, it, like what would it do exactly to amplify? Does it just amplify everything that you've been doing, or what? What is it exactly? So it's just another way. It's, it, you're coming at inflammation from another angle. Got it. Okay. okay. And so everything else you're doing is helping inflammation, and then you're adding sort of another layer to help help it out. And I, I believe that twice a year everybody should do what I call the inflammation spin down. And it's it's a it's a very specific five day period of just knocking inflammation down. Um, new research. So there's a lot of there's a lot of confusion about uh, aging, and there's some new concepts in the air right now. Uh, DNA methylation, one of them, and you know. Uh, so what I've done for a number of years is looked at different researchers, and what you see is that when you look at different researchers, they're going to give you a different worldview. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means that they're just doing research down this one sort of lane. And when you go look at a different researcher who's looking at something entirely different, you get sort of a different worldview. And it doesn't make either one of these guys wrong, but what it does is give us to this place of like, we, we, don't, we don't know. Like, we don't have all the answers yet, mm. okay? So we're just looking kind of for, you know, the scattergraph of like, where, where's the center we can all aim for? So what you see is <clears throat> when it comes to aging, the, the belief that's bubbling up right now is that, well, it's telomere length and, and DNA methylation. That's, that's the thing, man. That's the thing. If we just hack that, then we're good. Well, <clears throat> counter to that, <clears throat> there's research now with sanitarians, so people who are over 100 years old, and it shows that telomere length is not the driver. It's not the primary driver. Inflammatory markers are more the driver uh, past a certain age. And what sanitarians seem to do is they have this sort of low-grade inflammation that's acted in a hormetic way 
mm. with them that other people don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So they've been able to upregulate their inflammatory response, and that's why they're able to live so long. Um, in terms of measuring biological age, um, there's this idea that, well, DNA methylation is how we know biological age. Well, now there's other ways. There's, there's uh, serum glycans, which are blood sugar proteins. Um, there's new tests that, that probably are more accurate. And, and there's even more recent tests now looking at different types of blood proteins in the serum that show distinct phases of aging. So 34, um, 60, and 78 are the three major waves of aging. And we can measure those by blood proteins not related to DNA methylation. So all that says that inflammation really is kind of your meta driver of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And immunity is kind of this crux variable in the equation. We don't have all the mechanisms figured out. Like we don't even understand uh, very key aspects of the mitochondria, like hypoxia-inducible factor. We don't really understand all that. But we can kind of start to gather around some generalities and do some things that kind of make sense around that. And spinning down inflammation seems to make a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So Yeah, I remember you talking about <laughs> having like, you know, specific days in your diet or specific meal plan in your diet for uh, kind of like anti-cancer. Right. And is that what you're kind of talking about when you're talking about inflammation? Is that, that would be probably anti-cancer, right? Yeah, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. So um, I've never heard anybody talk about their diet in, that, in those <laughs> terms, too. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, very, yeah, you can do very, very, uh, well, it's my opinion. I, I think that very powerful things are possible through dietary modulation to reduce risk of cancer onset, and, and a lot of those mechanisms uh, target inflammatory things. Mm. And, and again, at the end of the day, it's just a, it's just a to-do list. That's all right. it is. And it's just different lists. That's all. Uh, do you believe that um, all diseases are metabolic and can be fixed uh, maybe through nutrition or even avoided altogether? No. Uh, no. There are clearly, there are clearly a, a range of issues that drive disease. Uh, some of them are metabolic, maybe more than we might even think. Mm-hmm. But then there, there are other things related to um, – some things are just purely hereditary. Other things are environmental. Um, so it, it's a mix. mix Where does cancer fall into that? Cancer, cancer is, boy, that's a fascinating topic. Um, cancer, first of all, cancer is a disease of growth. Okay, that's what cancer is. Without growth, there's no cancer. Okay, it, in other words, if cells cannot divide, then there's no cancer. Okay, when you look at growth and what drives growth, um, metabolic factors are probably much bigger than has been taken into account simply because of the signal pathways that drive cancer. Mm. So there's a very few specific signal pathways involved in driving growth. And those have very specific things like food, like, like, like yeah, you, food is very important in driving cancer. Um, but then there are, there are very specific junctures and things that happen. Um, one of those is called the um, epithelial me- uh, mesenchymal transition. And it's where cells in the, endothelium in the blood sort of detach, you know, and kind of float around and become oncogenic. Okay. So arresting cell cycle growth has a lot to do with cancer onset or preventing cancer onset. And a lot of that is metabolic. It can be controlled through controlling signal pathways by controlling food. So um, not 100%. Uh, some, some things to do with cancer are driven by um, very specific proteins in signal pathway cascades that turn on, 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 and then one gets locked in an on position, doesn't go back off. So, um, but I, I, th- I personally, I think that uh, cancer is one of those areas that the metabolic 
component and the inflammatory component related to um, redox or oxidation probably is a much bigger thing than generally we give it credit for. Did you work with Ron on the uh, uh, the keto pet uh, sanctuary at all? No, not at all. No, yeah, I, know he, I know you had that with the uh, the dogs on the keto diet. Yeah, I mean, he's done some amazing things. Yeah. I mean, really amazing things. Uh, we were having lunch a couple months back and uh, started talking about that. And he was telling me like the cancer incident rate with dogs now is, is I, I don't remember the exact number. I don't want to yeah. quote him, but it's, it's yeah through the roof. Astronomical. And I, I, it's related to food. Yeah. Blew me away. Cool. I, I mean, hopefully they can find more research because, you know, I know that plagues, you know, millions of people. Um, what about something like uh, autism? You know, it's something we hear quite a bit about. And sure. it seems like it's it seems like there's more and more kids that are autistic. I'm not sure if it's uh, they have more ways of diagnosing it or I'm, I don't really know what's going on. But uh, will a food intervention uh, assist these kids from maybe perhaps no longer being autistic or will it just um, assist them maybe in some other ways? Like how powerful would it be? I think it could be extremely powerful. There's there's clearly um, there's clearly a, a, a gut bacteria component related to autism, and the presence of certain species uh, seems to really play a part in autism. Um, so I, I think that uh, food and very specific patterns of food and substrate targeted to grow species in the gut. I think I think it could be very very powerful for that. Does, does it at all have a or does you know what the mother eats during pregnancy? have any effect on the onset of autism? Uh, actually, yeah, there's some really good research on that. Um, so there are, and, oh, we, I can't remember the name of this. Um, and it's, I, I actually have this in my cupboard. It's uh, there's a darn it. You know, this is one area I'm drawing a blank, but yes. Um, so the, the administration of certain uh, prebiotic elements during pregnancy potentially or even even just shortly after birth potentially has the ability to um uh, to definitely dramatically impact onset and i'm just i'm blanking on the the exact substance in the study but um i actually actually went and bought this stuff mm. as a result of it so yeah i think definitely got it um that gets into what's called transgenerational epigenetics mm-hmm. um i did a podcast on this a couple of years ago uh there's a worldview that you can explain the entire obesity epidemic purely by um, soma to germline by what mother eats passed on to children and programming, metabolically programming the, uh, the egg and sperm for food preferences. And it takes four to five generations to fix. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at like, so like what somebody's doing to themselves right now during pregnancy can negatively yeah. impact. Well, I guess that totally makes sense, but I, to put it, in, put it in perspective like this, you could be negatively impacting or positively impacting, uh, five generations down the road. Hundred percent, yeah. Holy so, shit! Um, <laughs> I better watch what I do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah, it's very real. Oh it's it's a it's a burgeoning field, but um, so it what is Jesus new information Christ. is wild. It's crazy, right? Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Yeah, you can actually explain the obese if you go back and you look at the onset of certain types of foods in the American diet in the fifties and soma to germline uh, transgenerational epigenetics. You can make this case that the obesity epidemic sprung up there, and it's just playing out. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> Speechless. Uh, this is yeah. a great episode. One of this. the best. Um, damn. Can I go real quick yeah. back to sleep? Sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Have you ever messed with the chili pad? 
I've not, no. No, it's just a pad to keep you cool at night to keep your body temperature down. Mm, yeah, I've heard about that. Okay. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I'm just curious about that one. Are there any special little, like, tools that you use other than, like, potentially not that, but are there any other tools you use for sleep outside of, you know, your nutrition and everything? Uh, you mean, like, like uh, Things to appliances. buy, potential appliances. I, I want to yeah. build a Faraday cage. That's, like, on my list to do. A Faraday cage? Yeah. What wanna, is that? Uh, so it's just, um, you can get sheets now that are lined with copper. And then you can completely block all EM while you're sleeping. And I've 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 <laughs> talked to people that have done this. You can block out what? <laughs> all electromagnetic oh, spectrum okay, while yeah, you're yeah, sleeping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, people that I've talked to that have done this swear by it. Huh? Yeah. So is that's, Ben that's, Greenfield doing this yet? Yeah, <laughs> probably right <laughs> with his tin hat. <laughs> oh, Just man. blocking all the Wi-Fi signals yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Dang. Yeah, I, I definitely want to play with that. I want to try it. Got for it for sure. Yeah. Cool. Um. So you had Mark on a certain protocol when he when he lost a ton of fat and then he came out of it. What what did you get? I mean, I know it was awesome because I was eating some of the like similar things that he was at that time, mm-hmm. and he just like texts me, "Hey, have a you know have a big old hamburger, have fries, <laughs> yeah. and then finish that up with a uh, with a grilled cheese sandwich." He's like, yeah. "But not like a homemade like cheap one. Go right. out to a you know restaurant yeah. and have that thing and have at it um and i'm asking because i actually dropped the most body fat that i ever have in my whole life recently mm. and this was at the end of last year so i don't know if like i missed my window of like recouping but you he's guys are... asking for permission for grilled cheese sandwiches right now <laughs> <laughs> but genuinely like um what would be the best way to recoup after dropping so much body fat when when was it when this when was you... uh right before christmas so okay. a month ago exactly oh, so good timing okay mm-hmm. So first thing you've got to jump on is, and this is a little tricky just timing-wise, but um, so start with leptin. So so leptin drives food intake, and you've, you've, got to, you've got to get that back up while not gaining weight. So there, there's some very specific patterns you can implement. One would be, in your case, you want to, you want to shoot for... You want to shoot for about a two, three-day period of, of 2 xing your calories kind of in a sequence. So breakfast would be super huge. Like you want roughly 1,000 calories at breakfast, 1,500. Before breakfast, you need to set that up with um, a couple things. So before breakfast, start with the whey protein shake. Add some olive oil, add some cinnamon to that. Wait 30 minutes, okay? Um, take a little bit. I would probably do like an alpha-lipoic acid or maybe berberine prior the, to The uh, protein and uh, olive oil yeah. and cinnamon is right. helping uh, to regulate blood sugar for what you're about to eat and help with insulin or something like that? Mm, yeah, what we're doing is we're, we're going to shift the um, postprandial glucose peak a little mm-hmm. bit with that. So we're going we're gonna to drop the we're going to drop the the highest peak and we're going to push it back a little bit by having that 30 minutes prior then at breakfast there's there's a couple combinations or ways you can do this one is healthier one is less healthy and you'll do both so the less healthy one you do on sunday morning the more healthy one you do on wednesday morning so the more healthy one what you'd want to do is you're going to get in about a thousand calories okay um but you need to add a few kind of healthy things to the mix so uh, a really great start or foundation is steel cut oats raw. Okay. Like put some water in, put them in the microwave for like five seconds, add a little bit of cinnamon, add honey to that. Okay. That's, that's kind of like to start, then throw in probably 10 egg whites, um, three or four eggs, 
Um, then you'd want to throw in giant, giant plate of blueberries, like mm. more than a half plate, three fourths of a plate in yeah. that range. <laughs> um, so what you're doing with that is we want to get, we want to get um, phenols in your blood up. Okay. We want to get your serum phenols up. What that's going to do is it's going to create a buffer zone to offset oxidation of things we're going to put in you later. It's also going to help keep you from gaining fat again because serum phenols in the blood, they have very specific effects on gene activation when it comes to storing fat. Uh, probably uh, two, two slices of toast along with that. I would do sourdough, um, throw some butter on it. So, you know, covering about a thousand calories, that's, that's the healthy version of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, then as you're getting into mi- midday, that chipotle meal I gave you would be a really good one to do. Um, and then prior to that chipotle meal, uh, probably have a couple cheese sticks to set it up with. Um, and then as you get into dinner, the trick here is you need, you need a massive amount of food, but it's got to kind of be functional. Uh, one good way to do that would be spaghetti squash, meatballs, uh, cheese, you know, like, like a really giant spaghetti dish, but you're using spaghetti squash kind of as the base for that. And so when you kind of look at that whole day, it's a ton of calories, but it's, it's very healthy. But what you are getting is you're getting a ton of flavor, okay? You're getting stomach distension, um, and, but you're also getting a lot of functional properties, okay? What this is for is you're going to set up now Sunday with that. And then Sunday morning, I'm going to repeat this, but instead, now you're going to go for flavor. So, you know, pancakes, eggs, bacon, you know. Now he smiles. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I smile because you yeah. look right at me. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, so do like double take, huh? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be pancakes? very, very, very big meal. So what we're looking to do with this here is we're looking to create tremendous amount of satiety, tremendous amount of fullness, okay, um, and just a, a tremendous amount of sort of like pushing back against leptin. So we want to get, get serum leptin levels kind of where they should be, okay? Then coming into lunch, um, you need another preload meal prior to that, so cheese sticks or whatever. You want to have soup, okay? <laughs> so what you want to do with soup, soup is incredibly incredibly uh filling drive yeah, he was telling me to eat uh pho i'm like what the hell is pho mm, yeah uh, thai uh, yeah thai soup i guess right yeah so is amazing what we're doing here so is we're we're stacking so one after another of like satiety 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 like satiety we're, we're trying to push leptin back up but we're not doing it really in a way that for the most part is going to add a lot of fat on you if anything it's going to have actually the opposite effect hopefully we want to get some of the some of the feasting blood proteins going with this kind of thing. Okay. Mm. Um, then at dinner with that, I would do a giant bowl of chili with some cheese on it. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that's, that's kind of like a, a starter kit for the, the post fat loss leptin box mm-hmm. to check. But that, that gets you down that road of um, very often when you look at failure rates for fat loss, it's uh, 50% of it is two things. It's the energy gap, meaning metabolism is lower, leptin's higher, okay? Um, so you're going to eat more and you burn less, okay? So if you can push leptin down a little bit so keep you from eating more and then get metabolism up, we're going to offset a good chunk of that. So hmm. that gets you in the, in the universe of beginning to really hack that. that that's crazy. That's, that's exciting for one. But um, I, I wanted to ask because like, uh, so Enzima's doing all my nutrition help and all that. He's coaching me through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he obviously after I had a photo shoot, so after that was over, it was like, okay, let's, you know, get, you have a little bit of freedom now. 
And so that little bit of freedom led to a little bit more eating than I should have been doing. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was like, oh, man, I, I look terrible. I feel terrible. Mm-hmm. I probably gained at least four pounds. I'm, so mm-hmm. I, I dropped down to 171. I'm like, I'm at least at 175. Mm-hmm. I checked. I'm at 172. And then even today, I dropped back down to 171. Yeah. And the only reason why I, like, I'm really concerned is because like, I, I lost the look. But the weight stayed the same. So mm-hmm. I didn't know if like it's because I added fat or I, I lost muscle or like I didn't know exactly like what was going on. Because mm-hmm. I definitely look different, but mm-hmm. I weigh the exact same. Uh, just just um, just sodium alone, you know, would account for some of that. Mm. So, you know, I, I wouldn't. Maybe training motivation too. Like Absolutely. Maybe you're not as pumped, you know, to, to go in there and totally. kill it. Yeah, yeah, and then I think the energy levels too have, have have dipped down, but I think that's also like just the motivation and the mindset. Yeah, um, energy gets into so uh, generally speaking, when when the body's um, very lean, you're going to have higher energy, uh, and you're going to be mm. you know, especially when you're burning fat, you're going to have you know, you're, you're especially when you're burning ketones, you're going to you know have a ton of energy, and then slamming all this food in there and all the substrate and kicking insulin up again like that, you're going to feel a little bit of a dip, but. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, I think it's, I think overall, like, so if you make, if you make the most important thing, you know, the shredded abs look for life, which has no bearing in reality that anybody lives in other than, you know, someone that that's all you do. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of that is to really just maintain the benefits of what you've achieved forever. And so there's all these counterpoints you have to start checking the boxes off, you know, and, and we haven't even gotten into like, all the genetic activation that happens post post maintenance. Yeah, you're almost out of the woods too, because it takes about six or eight weeks to kind of be in the clear of like having your head be back yeah. to normal and a bunch of other things. And then one of the things that got me really excited when I first talked to Joel, um, you know, he was he was more about like kind of the end result, like like what's it going to look like two years from now, three years from now, four years from now, and that's the thing that's exciting is that. You know, you, you go through different spots now and it's easy to get like up and it's easy to go down um, in terms of how happy or excited you are about the results or a lack of results sometimes. Um, but you're always going to be moving towards the bigger picture, which you have been the entire time. So, you know, that's and Seema and I usually just tell you to chill the fuck out and usually everything's good because we know that you're going to be consistent. We know that things will come back around for you and you'll it just uh, it just all takes time. But. You know, that's what I love so much about the principles that you're sharing with us is like, you know, if, if people can look like this in their in their mid 50s, then then that that's the goal. Right. Mm-hmm. Not not just to be yeah. jacked in our 20s and then be fat when we're 50. Yeah. Thanks. Absolutely. And Mark's totally right. I'm, I'll come in. I'm, Dude, I look terrible. Like you look the exact same. Like, are you sure? Yeah. That is a terrible feeling, though, to have a day where you just feel fat or flat, you know, or you just don't, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're just not feeling it for whatever. You're like, man, I need to get bigger. What the fuck's going on here? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, thank you for everything, but yeah, like, yeah. especially that, that yeah. was, that was really cool. Yeah, sure. For yeah. sure. Cool. Cool, man. Thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, veepnutrition.com. Um, get the book there. Get it all. Peak you human. Should, yeah. You should get it. You should get it all. There, there you go. Is it a... Uh, everyone's question always is is it on amazon or will it be it will it will be not yet um i'm i'm in the process of like really learning the publishing market and with a, with a book like this that was so science intensive um i really wanted to get my feel on the the buyer mm-hmm. and and like the feedback and be very close to the ground you know in the early going here so and i'm and i'm learning there's no money in books you know there really isn't but it's um 
this I did more because I've just I've been on the receiving end of just stuff that messed me up for years, mm-hmm. and um, it kind of came out of that that whole thing. So you know, hopefully, people find it beneficial. So. Um, do you have a YouTube channel and social media and stuff like that? Okay, so I just got an Instagram. I need your help, everybody. Please come like uh, friend me because I feel like a complete um, yeah loser <laughs> doing um, that now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I need to follow me, and then uh, don't have a YouTube channel yet. I, I, Wait, what's the Instagram name? Oh, uh, Real Joel Green. Okay, I don't know. Yep. And then uh, no, don't have a YouTube channel yet. I'm I'm probably gonna start one. I I just I to be honest, I'm. I know you need to in today's environment. It's that whole thing of like once you commit to doing it, yeah. it becomes what you do. Yeah, yeah. And you're married to it now. Yeah, and then you're kind of stuck to it. Yeah. What about uh, maybe uh, doing like a podcast or something like that? Would that be something you you might do or something? Because I think like the main thing is just to figure out a way to get your message out there. I'm sure you're aware of like someone like Peter Itia. Yeah. You know, you know, you're familiar with that name. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, you having a microphone set up and speaking in your microphone about something in particular that, that either popped up in your head or, I mean, you talking for 15 minutes, like that's a that's a great piece of content uh, that the world could really use, you know. So I encourage you strongly to, to try to jump into something like that because I, I think it would really be – it is a pain in the ass, you know. It is a pain in the ass, but – uh, in whatever least amount of pain you can handle, you know, try mm-hmm. to either do YouTube or potentially do like a podcast type of thing. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I, I need to, uh, just jump on that now. I, I, getting this thing done, like took so much out of me to get it done that you said uh, like three years, right? Three and a half. Yeah. I, I'm just coming online now for like, uh, you know, the rest <laughs> of everything else. So. How in the hell did you learn this stuff? I mean, are you like a food scientist? Or are you a professor? Like, What's your goddamn deal? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I get asked that one a lot. Could you imagine? Could you imagine like you know me and me and Seema are being meatheads and we're talking about like our diet, you know? And this guy chimes in with some of the stuff that he knows. We'd be like, "What? Yeah, what's going on over here? How do you know all this shit?" No, I just I just think it was necessity, really. You know, I just it was necessity. I um along the way I created this uh, software program and uh, we started selling to like hospitals and stuff. And then they started, you know, sticking the, the PhD in front of me and, you know, I had to sell that dude. And, and so it was, a lot of it was necessity, but then a lot of it too was, um, it's just kind of been this thing I've always been into. And I, I just, I got bamboozled so much for so many years that I just got to a point where I was like, <clears throat> you know, I just gotta, I just gotta learn this for myself, you know? I just, I remember uh, 1989, I don't remember this, Champion Nutrition came yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the guy lives in the area. We're supposed to have him on the podcast, you know, uh, the, the creator. Yeah. Okay. So Metabolol 2 had MCTs, the fatless fat on the label. And I read that and I was like, okay, that was the era of no fat. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I've got a fat, I have no fat, that's impossible. <laughs> so I started like, you know, looking at MCTs because that was just unheard of back mm-hmm. then and then vince mcmahon did the wbf and and they put everybody on the keto diet and you know so all this stuff like i was just kind of a, on the front line of like what the hell is this how does this work and trying to figure it out and um probably for me a lot of the issues i had just running into problems with things really drove it you know my own personal issues of just what happened because i was doing things that people told me were good for me you know are you like uh, by name, like a nutritionist or a no. doctor or? No, I don't make any claims. I'm a consumer. That's what I am. I am yeah. I'm a consumer who just, you know, finally just said um, enough's enough. 
How'd you get involved with uh, Ron Penna and Quest Nutrition? Because it seemed like he he brought together kind of like a a superhero, uh, you know, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen kind of thing <laughs> yeah, that yeah. he uh, had going on over there. Yeah. Well, Ron's an extraordinary guy. He uh, very. We were um, we we were both in the technology industry back in the mid two thousands, and we both were running these companies, and. He he was one of my customers actually. I didn't even I didn't I always talked to Mike Mike Osborne. I didn't even know <laughs> that that uh, so. Long story short, I was friends with one of his guys, and just purely by a fluke, like in two thousand twelve, we kind of caught up, and I didn't know I didn't know about I just knew about their clothing. I was like, hey, Michael, man, those are pretty cool clothes, man. Where, where'd you get those? And he's like, oh, Joel, come on down. The protein bar is kicking butt. And I'm like, what protein bar are you talking about? He's like, Quest, man. I'm like, Quest, what? You're, he's like, we're Quest. I'm like, you're Quest, what? So next thing you know, I next thing you know, I'm in front of Ron, and I had created my nutrition system, and Ron was really passionate about nutrition, and literally he gave me 30 seconds. We got in a room and he tried to blow me out of the water and I started, I went into some bio babble and he was like, okay, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so next thing you know, we start talking and that just led to like literally years of talking about stuff. Um, and then 2015, 16, uh, we got on this convo about methionine restriction that I was into and, um, and Ron was pretty fascinated by that. And he's like, that's our thing. That's what we're going to do. And so that led to, you know, coming to Quest and being part of that whole sort of magical picture for the time that it was there which was i just you know like man um talk about like being being part of a thing where you know everybody there is just some genius it's something that you know right. nothing about and you're just kind of like wow yeah. i mean it was pretty cool it was really cool and that was that was all ron putting that together you have any travel coming up or any seminars coming up um no nothing yet i'm just getting out into the market to start um to start driving all this, I just, I just literally got, you know, the birthing was done and now I'm, you know, off, uh, off, off to the races right. with this. So. Yeah. I remember you were on uh Kyle Kingsbury's podcast. Um, so, uh, hopefully we can set you up with some other podcast people so we can keep getting your message out there and people oh. can learn more about this book. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, I sincerely appreciate it. Where can people find you, Andrew? Uh, you guys can hit me up at I am Andrew Z on Instagram. Make sure you're following the podcast at Mark Bell's power project podcast. Um, at MB Power Project on Twitter and TikTok, and make sure you are subscribed on iTunes and please leave a review. And before I forget, a uh, huge shout out to Piedmontese Beef um, for sponsoring this podcast. That's uh, Piedmontese.com. That's P I E D M O N T E S E.com. At checkout, enter promo code Power Project for 25% off your order. And if your order is $99 or more, you get free two day shipping. If my name was Encima Eang, where the heck would I be on Instagram and uh, all over the place? That exact thing, and see my on Instagram and YouTube, and see my yin yang on Twitter and TikTok. So it's not you? it's not Big Daddy anymore. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're just a weird, weird dude. Anyway, how about you, Mark? <laughs> We're on day number twenty three of World Carnivore Month. Thank you guys for joining in on that. If you want to find out more information about the carnivore diet, check out my YouTube channel, which is uh, Mark Smelly Bell. Also, Instagram, Mark Smelly Bell, and Twitter as well, and TikTok. Strength is never a weakness. Weakness is never a strength. Catch you all later.